This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian LaTenry, and today we are talking about the double platinum second studio album from White Lion, 1987's Pride. You had to get the double platinum bit in there. I had to get it in there. You got to show some respect. (laughs) It's it's always respect your elders around here. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. An album that I had never heard before. And I'm not even sure if I'd heard the singles before, even though they were apparently big hits. But uh, yeah, well, we'll talk, we'll talk about that when we get uh, onto the band proper. But yeah, suffice to say, this was my first go around with White Lion. Very interesting for us to uh, dive into this one, and I certainly cannot wait to hear how much you absolutely loved it, and is probably a Desert Island album for you now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know me so well. Uh, yeah. uh, what have we got? There's actually not a lot of follow-up from uh, last episode. We got uh, several new patrons since the last episode. Peter Jones, Neil Ryan, James Ellis... <laughs> And somebody who put their name in as Do a Gajira album. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but their name I mean, appears I, to I be... actually admire that. But their name appears to be Samuel. Uh, so thank you and welcome all. Um, as always, you know, we'll remind everyone that if you are not yet a patron and you want to help support the show, keep us going, you know, help pay for our server costs, that sort of thing, because we don't run ads, we don't have sponsors, you know, we are completely independent and funded by you, the listeners. So if you want to be one of those listeners, uh, listeners and patrons that supports the show you can do that at patreon.com slash thrash it out uh and of course you can also check out the show notes to do things like buy a t-shirt uh, which also helps um and that's pretty much it other than like yeah the reaction to the faith no more episode which was our listener choice for this volume i was just before that i was thinking about which gojira album i feel like people would want us to do magma <laughs> Um, I think they probably would, yeah. But yeah, the new one's it's... really good too, and those are kind of my. That's when I came into Gojira. Is much later than I think everybody else. But anyways, uh, certainly good, uh, good suggestion for the future, and uh, a good way to get it on the radar is yeah. to put your, you know, <laughs> your your user tag as the uh, as the suggestion. It's also kind of a way to subvert the poll too. Interesting. Well, indeed, yeah. yeah. I like it. Our listeners are, are uh, finding new and innovative ways to get their suggestions across to us. They're, so they're sneaky bastards, I think, is the word you're looking for. <laughs> but uh, and we're good listeners, Anthony, because the last episode was the listener choice episode. Yep. And so we talked about Faith No More, Angel Dust, an album that we would probably never, and probably a band that we would never have. Well, have, we might. We maybe said in the late. Yeah, we might have done Faith No More, but if we had, we probably would have done the real thing. That's the yeah. th- I think that's the thing. If if we'd chosen, if one of us had chosen a Faith No More album, we almost certainly would have chosen the real thing. So Angel Dust really was, yeah, the only way that we would have talked about that particular album, I think, was through the Listener Choice Poll. And it was Jonathan Moore who, who nominated that, and uh, so glad that he did, because I fell in love with that album. And, uh, of course, there was a lot of great discussion after the episode as well. So let's read some of the feedback. Uh, Joe said, for those who haven't heard any pre-Patton slash real thing, Faith No More, here's the one song that got some notice. I always dug it, though never heard anything else from this album. And the song is called We Care A Lot. You can find it on YouTube. He put the link, if you're in the actual thread, the link is in there with the actual video. The funny thing about that was, in the UK at least, I mean, I'm not saying that nobody had heard it before, but that track enjoyed actually a bit of a resurgence in popularity after 
pattern era, Faith No More got really popular. Um, I think, you know, with people kind of going, hey, did you know they had a different singer before this guy? And there was this song, uh, and it's pretty good. So, yeah, it was... Uh, I, I think I didn't hear We Care A Lot until after um, things like From Out Of Nowhere and stuff like that off The Real Thing had already been, um, you know, become hits. Uh, John said, wow, Brian is geeking out hard. So, yeah, if you wondered how much in love I fell with this uh, album. He said, sorry you missed them for the most part at the time, but welcome to the Faith No More fan club. They are so great, so important to my musical life. Would love to hear your thoughts on other albums someday. So I have uh, started digging into the other Faith No More albums, and I just love that statement, right? So important to my musical life, because all of us have those bands. Where are going to talk about a band that I feel like is that for me today? And so, um, but it's always fascinating to hear like from other people, what are those bands for them? Right. And, and especially anyone who grew up in anywhere near the era that we did, cause we're, you know, very close to the same age. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm just always fascinated by that. Uh, let's see what else. Phil said, FNM FML he said when the real thing blew up in 8990 I was like what the f is this metal guitarist with some goofy ass singer sounding like he should be doing looney tunes voiceovers I clearly was not hip enough to get it this struck me as a new sound aimed decidedly at the not 80s youth I did actually have both the real thing and the and angel dust on cd and tried to quote unquote get it never did still don't uh, I can appreciate the artistry of much of it, like I wandered around MoMA in NYC last year, looking at art pieces <laughs> and declaring, look, art. Clearly, this is artistic, and I'm told it's great, but it's completely lost on me. Okay, Phil, I'm going to have to push back a little bit on that, um, because I feel like that attitude is a lot of what we get from a different angle as lovers of hair metal. Um, and I think you can make the case for a lot of different genres of metal, right? Like I, well, I've, I've said that very specifically about some of the hair metal bands that you've brought onto the podcast that I can appreciate and sort of admire the technical ability and what have you, but it just leaves me cold. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's the air quotes that, that Phil used in some of these <laughs> things in terms of like, get it and artistry, uh, because I think that stuff is lobbied against different, uh, pieces, but I do, I do understand the sort of. Um, like hipster, you know, moment, because it's so funny because for whatever reason, uh, one, because Mike Patton did a cover of a Twin Peaks um, song on one of his albums and one of his other projects, but there's such a Twin Peaks vibe to this album for me that that is also something that gets lobbied at Twin Peaks, right? Oh, I get that this is supposed to be some amazing show yeah. that people who love it totally love it, but I don't get it at all. And it and it just makes no sense to me or, you know, um, so I'm not one of the cool kids sort of thing. Um, and, but it made me think like, did I avoid Faith No More back in the day? Because I also thought like, oh, this is music for some new- This is not for me. Yeah. This is some new breed of cool kid that I am not and I don't get it. I don't think so. I think just for me, like outside of a couple of songs off of the real thing, there wasn't enough of what at the time I, you know, was my music that hooked me to want to learn more. Um, and I think like if I think I said this in the show, but like if I had listened to this album when I when I was a teenager, it would not have had the impact on me that it had when yeah. I listened to it for an episode of this show. Like this hit me at the right time in my life. And 
I fell in love with it in a way that I just wouldn't have when I was younger. So, which is another thing I love about this show and the suggestions we get from people in the community and the discussions we have here. And just like you introducing me to new things is that for a lot of these things, they hit me different now and I can appreciate them so much more than I would have at the time. Uh, let's see what else. Lots of happiness. Phil was very happy about the homework assignment, though, uh, as was I'll Mike. <laughs> uh, a, few, a few people on the thread were like, holy crap. Uh, and I laughed so hard. I didn't realize you were putting little tidbits in at the end of the recording of the episodes. Oh, and so, way to, way to tell everybody that you don't listen to your own show. <laughs> I never listened back through it again. I, like, we're doing the show now. Uh, the only time I go back and listen for it is for the musical clips, because that is something that um, right, right. I really appreciate. But Oh, yeah. No, I, I, okay. I mean, I don't do it every episode, but yeah. Uh, you know, if there's something fun or interesting that oh I cut God. out or that we were talking about before we went on air or something uh, or something that goes wrong, yeah, I will sometimes clip it out and put it at the end as a little bonus. So Phil drew a parallel to Emperor Palpatine in terms of my happiness and continuing to assign <laughs> 80s hair metal band homework to people. And that, oh my God, when I went and listened to it, I was crying. That was so funny. Um, super funny. Uh, Matthew <laughs> now, said... Now witness the awesome power of this fully operational hair metal oh my podcast. God. Yeah, it was, it was so... That was perfect, dude. That, that's a, that was a great pull on that. Uh, let's see, Matthew said, on the genre debate in the episode regarding heavy metal, etc., I'd like to throw in a curveball that I think of heavy metal as a specific type of music that to a large degree has been dormant since around 1990. I think of it including the likes of Sabbath, Judas Priest, early Iron Maiden, etc., and a lot of what has come out since isn't that. I'm not saying it's good or bad, by the way. Heavy metal gets thrown around as the blanket term for what we listen to, but I think of it as being a specific genre, too, that peaked in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and obviously that, I mean, you responded to that. There was quite a bit of discussion. Yeah, it was, it was a really good, you know, it was a, a good post, I thought. I mean, I disagreed with uh, parts of it, but I thought it was very well thought, yeah. Yeah, that sparked a lot of discussion. Andrew said, just quickly on the genre front, personally, I would make a distinction between rock and rock and roll. The latter is what I would think of as more poppy and rhythm and blues influence, while the former has a harder, bigger sound. So deep purple rock. Springsteen rock and roll. But to be honest, it's so muddy and mutable as uh, to be yeah. meaningless. I considered GNR as heavy metal back in the day, but would never, but never would now, or most hair metal bands, to be honest. I even thought Led Zeppelin was metal, he said. So, well, yeah, like I think proto metal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think some of those things change as new variations come out right it makes you rethink the old versions of things and yeah, then well we've talked about that before haven't we with the evolution of metal and the technicality especially of uh, you know the sort of baseline expectancy that people have of uh players abilities and certain sounds and things like that and yeah you know you go back and listen to i don't know even something like like say let's take an album that we both love and consider a classic ride the lightning doesn't sound all that heavy now it's a great album it's still great the songs are great and everything but it's not all that heavy compared to say a slipknot <laughs> you know um so yeah it's i think you always have to take these things in the context of their time um but if the i mean maybe that's i don't know maybe that's why we have these crazy subgenres because that's obviously thrash metal but what 
people call thrash metal now is so much heavier than thrash metal was in the 80s, you know? And so you yes. get all these other crazy uh, micro versions of thrash metal that people label them with. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And so it just keeps like, it's almost like revisionist history, right? Like you just keep going back and thinking about, huh? Like there's things that I would say overall, in some ways, my need for heaviness has like I've almost become sensitized in some ways where I need things to be heavier now to have the same impact on me that they would have had right back yeah. in the day and so I'm glad it goes back to what I was just saying earlier about like when you hear these things like I'm glad I built my musical foundation in the way that I did because I could appreciate those things for what they were at the time and the things that I'm discovering now I feel like are complementing or building on, you know, that sort of foundation. And so it's just wild to be, you know, at our age now and both discovering new music in the genres that we grew up loving, but also still frequently revisiting the music that we grew up with, right? And like what what still resonates versus what feels played out or doesn't have the same impact on you as things from before. It's it's just wild to to kind of think about all of that. Mm. Evolution. Um, yeah, and I think we're constantly thinking about it because we're doing a new episodes of the show. We're talking about different bands. We're right, we probably think about this more than most people. To be for fair, sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, uh, way too much. In some, some may say, but uh, yeah. So just awesome discussions about genres and things like that. Um, Kenneth said, "I think you both missed how long Faith No More have been around." From, uh. You know, from the wiki, Faith No More is an American rock band from formed in 1979. Before settling on the current name in 1983, the band performed under the names Sharp Young Men and later Faith No Man. Um, maybe just because we didn't dig into the history too much of that stuff when we were listening to the album, that it, uh, yeah, I hope nobody felt like we glossed over it, but... Yeah, but also, I mean, you know, even a eighty three is still obviously a lot earlier than the album we oh uh, for sure talked about. But also, when a band, even if it's all the same members, when they change their name, there unless it's for legal reasons, you know, because it turns out there's already a band called that or something. It feel to me, it feels like you should consider that to be the start of a new band. Like I say, even if it's the same members, because you know, a band generally does that for ideological reasons because they want to change direction or they want to be perceived differently or they want to give off a different impression to their listeners um like i say unless it's for legal reasons or something so yeah i i I totally understand the point but personally i consider that to be a new band so i i would still say faith no more started in 83 there were other bands before it involving the same members uh or some of the same members but yeah i would still put fnm's start at 83 yeah yeah and uh, uh kenneth also had a lot of other stuff to say about this one let me pull up the rest of his comments here he said uh, i really love this episode i'm pretty sure i br- i bought angel dust the week it came out i'm really surprised that this album wasn't as big as i thought it was in ireland anyone who was into alternative music or metal was into it Pencil cases around the country had angel dust scrawled across them. Wow. <laughs> he said, uh, Faith No More played the same venue in Dublin that Nirvana and Metallica played, so I just assumed that they were huge everywhere. I love this album. It's a huge, glorious fuck you of an album that's as strange as it is great. 
The difference between Patton's terrible nasal vocal on The Real Thing and this is night and day and has to be one of the greatest progressions in singing. Easy wasn't on the cassette that I bought and I've always hated it. I never felt that it fit on the album. I always thought that Midnight Cowboy was a perfect way to ease the listener out of the album. As for the episode, how could anyone think of cutting caffeine? You're a madman, Anthony, and it's incredible <laughs> live. Uh, loved listening to Brian's enthusiasm. It was some heartwarming stuff, but I'm not sure if I'll be able to forgive next episode's pick. We'll have to see. When you've got the school kids' pencil cases, you know you're doing well. You know, that, that's, a, that's a barometer, isn't it? Yeah, I was thinking back, like I, pencil cases were more, I think by sort of middle school, I was out of the pencil case phase, but I was definitely still in the pencil collecting phase because there was a series of pencils that came out and you could get them at the school store that had all of the NFL teams on them. And as a uh, Chargers fan who was growing up on the East Coast, it was almost impossible pre-internet to get anything related to my favorite team. So I would buy everything that I saw. If I went to a state fair and they had a clock there and had a Chargers logo on it, I would buy it. Uh, I had shares with Char- Chargers logos on it. But these, this pencil set, like I would always um, buy the Chargers one as soon as it came in. And then I would trade with other people to get multiple uh, copies of that same thing. So definitely oh. still uh, big into pencil collecting, but just not the pencil case. Oh, we still had pencil cases through high school. Good Lord. I mean, they, they were hard cases, you know, the sort of like flip top things uh, by the time we got there. But yeah, we had them right the way through high school. Also, yes, man, the charges. God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you must be, you must have been heartbroken this year. Things are looking so promising. <laughs> you know, I almost had put that behind me and yet you just, you just brought that back up. Oh, but, uh, man. Hey, dude, look at what happened to the Dolphins. Jesus. Yeah. You know? I mean, just so anybody, in case anybody's wondering, you're listening to a Dolphins fan and a Chargers fan on this podcast. So if there's, uh, if anyone knows suffering in terms well, of sports. And even the Giants, both the Dolphins and the Giants, like my number one and number two teams, uh, got through this year and then just got absolutely destroyed in the playoffs. <laughs> I'll say this about the Chargers. I'm impressed at the level of innovation in finding new ways to, to lose. lose games. <laughs> like, as someone who's been a fan of them for like 40 years now, I am, I won't say pleasantly surprised, but I'm consistently surprised at their ability to lose in ways that I had not anticipated <laughs> or thought were even possible. And if they had that level of innovation in their offensive scheme, I think we'd be talking in a different way about this franchise, but they dedicate that innovation to finding ways to lose. Um, And there you go. That's your sports minute for (laughs) uh, this episode. Um, So much great discussion uh, from this. This is one of the longer discussion threads that we had. I think I'll leave it at that, but please, if you are on Facebook, go to the Facebook group. Great discussion on faith. No more. Um, And, you know, always commentary on the upcoming homework. And I would say, I felt like it was more favorable towards this homework than uh, than not in terms, at least, of the comments that we got in the feedback from the last episode. I think an as- there's an aspect of you know a glass of ice water in hell kind of thing <laughs> uh, for a lot of the listeners. You know, there's, there's, this volume especially, you are really serving listeners who 
you know, we are very grateful they've stuck with us for a long time, waiting for you to start rolling out the the heavy metal giants, the hair metal giants, sorry, I should say. Um, so, yeah, I think there's an aspect of, like, finally, at last, people coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. Um, and I am one of those people that is coming out of the yeah, woodwork. Yeah. And, I, I mean, just like, I, clearly that's been a theme for this volume of uh, the podcast is these eighties hair metal bands that I've been threatening to, but also promising to for the people that are looking forward to them talk about at some point. And with a show like thrash it out, like the expectation from the title is obviously that we're diving deep into pretty heavy stuff. I think those listeners that have been around for a while have come to realize that it really is about celebrating albums of uh, across the whole spectrum. And we've done that over, uh, you know, all of the volumes that we've sort of had here, but there are a dozen probably, uh, you know, bands that I felt like for me personally, over the life of this show, I would want to get to. And so for this particular volume, I've decided to, you know, throw in a handful of them to really, um, as you said, to to just as kind of a thank you for the people that have stuck it out for so long and have been like, man, are we ever going to talk about these bands? And so, yes, we are. Um, there's well, uh, and you're right. You know, ever since we ever since volume one, right from the very start, you know, we have covered a whole variety of albums, including some albums that people would, you know, uh, have taken people by surprise in our album choices from a certain band. Um, so yeah, it's all. You know, the, the name is the name because it's it's a good name. Uh, but yeah, of course, we're not going to only cover like the heaviest heavy stuff or thrash stuff. I mean, one of my picks this uh, volume, remember, was Nightwish. Yeah. Which, you know, is not a, a mega heavy thing at all. Well, um, and I think it speaks to the DNA of the show and our general philosophy of like, and you've said it many times, like metal is a broad church, right? And yeah. so we want to make it clear, and we, I think, have done that, and our community gets that and everything yeah, else, yeah, that this yeah. is uh, this is for everybody who likes any part of this music. And so, um, yeah, so thanks for those that have stuck it out for this long, and for those that feel like they are now the ones in hell that I am uh, dragging them <laughs> through over the course of this volume, like it won't last forever. Um, they will come back again though, but, uh, yeah, there was a handful of bands that I felt like in this volume, I really wanted to make sure to hit upon. Sure. And, and that makes sense. Uh, okay, well, and this well, band is definitely one of them. Yeah. Let's talk about White Lion then. Let me, cause you're going to have a lot more to say about this band than me, obviously. Like I said, I... I don't think I'd even heard anything by them. I certainly hadn't, you know, listened to this album specifically. Uh before preparing for this show i'd heard the name but i couldn't have told you any song titles uh and like i say i'm not sure i even heard if i did hear any of their hits it was only in passing and i didn't remember any of them however what i did remember was the name mike tramp because Uh in the 90s he, like so many, <laughs> jumped on the grunge bandwagon uh, and formed a band called Freak of Nature, which, again, I didn't listen to because they were very, very obviously grunge bandwagon light. Uh, and, you know, that's not... I, I was not interested in that at all. But they were in Kerrang! quite a lot in the 90s. Um, you know, I think that they did a, had a couple of albums that were reasonably successful. Uh, Mike Tramp came across as a very personable guy. I think that probably helped. You know, that always helps with the press, doesn't it? Um, uh, And so I was aware of him, and I was aware that he'd been in a band called White Lion, but that was it. That was the extent of Mm -hmm. my knowledge, essentially. And that was the band he did directly after 
White Lion. That's right, yeah. Um, and then since then has gone on to do mostly solo stuff uh, and had a couple sort of ill-fated attempts to create a new version of White Lion. And we're not going to talk too much about the sort of post-White Lion goings-on, but... For a, so for this band, uh, first of all, like wh- why does this band mean you know things to me? First of all, when I saw the video for "Wait," which is a song on this album, immediately I fell in love with this band. Um, b- musically, like, but when you say "White Lion" to anyone who grew up during the hair metal era and was a fan of that music, Vito Brada is the first name that will come out of their mouth, and the love and awe that people who love hair metal have for him is almost unparalleled um he was i i can think of only one other guitar player who sort of like disappeared after from the scene for many years after their sort of heyday that people on every radio show on that metal show with eddie trunk on anything were constantly asking for updates about and the only other person I've ever seen even come close and didn't reach the level of veto was Jakey e. Lee. When Jakey e. Lee kind of went away from the scene forever, that was a name that would always come up as far as what happened to Jakey e. Lee. And he's since been back in the metal scene. I mean, he's done Red Dragon Cartel and he's um, he's been back around. But for years, he sort of fell off the map. And it was like a it was like a great mystery of like, why, why isn't this guy making music anymore? What is going on with him? That's Vito Brada, but like to an even higher level. When he walked away from the business in the early 90s, the fact that that was just it, it, A, it sort of cemented him as like this guitar god that just disappeared. So we have this limited sample size of his playing well and also also, no no decline no decline but also like people have clamored for him to come back and do anything for over 20 years now (laughs) like it is it's amazing like the love that people have for this guy's playing and so it's wild that you know some people who maybe aren't familiar with this music and stuff like might not even know who that is but for people who were a fan of this music like he is like a Mount Rushmore guitar player for, you know, for this genre of music. And just like for the guitar, the guitar god era in general, right, where most bands revolved around an amazing guitar player. And uh, there was a handful of them that really stood out as, you know, absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, I, I'd so, never heard of him. Yeah, I, I, which is wild, right? Because I wasn't um, into this band. I don't care about guitar gods. You know, I wasn't sort of into the scene or anything. So yeah, I'd never heard of him. Did you t- talking about like him disappearing and stuff? Have you looked him up on you know like Wikipedia and stuff? Um, oh it, yeah, absolutely. Right. So um, okay, go on then. So basically, and the thing is, is like there's not some big dramatic story. This is a band. That is so fascinating to look at. And there's so many different versions of like what the actual story is of what's going on. But um, he disappeared for like 15 years. And then in 2007, he came on Eddie Trunk's radio show. And when he came on that show, 
Eddie had said for years of like, that is the number one guy that he gets asked about all the time of, of wanting to know like what he's up to and how he's doing and things like that. And the basic story is that when White Lion broke up, he went home and took care of his family in New York. And um, his father had a long illness and then passed away. And he's basically been like taking care of his family and, and just being at home um, during these years that he's been out of the music business. Uh, there was an interview that I saw with, uh, with Greg D'Angelo, the drummer, from a couple years ago, where he was saying, like, Vito's a good Italian boy. He went home and took care of his family, and I admire, you know, that he's uh, done that. There's also, uh, he's also, Vito, Vito has talked about, in the few interviews that he's done, because he very rarely even does any interviews. Um, in fact, that, that one that he did with Eddie Trunk was the first one he had done in well over a decade. Uh, he talked about having a wrist injury. That actually affected his ability to play, especially electric guitar. That's what and I so was going to mention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for years he didn't pick up a guitar at all. And then when he did start playing again, he was playing an acoustic, and had to kind of go back and and had for a while not even tried to play anything from the White Lion era of music, and has since tried to go back and relearn some of the songs that he um, wrote. And so there was just a, but the crazy thing also is that he has all of his guitars um, in various stages of disrepair from that era that he recorded with, like he kept all of that stuff, but there was a huge period of time where he wasn't even playing guitar. And, um, you know, as far as a reunion, he said in that Eddie Trunk interview, he said like, I'll, I'll never rule it out because I had really good reasons for not wanting to do it. At the time, I had things happening in my life. I had it just wasn't the time to do it, but I'm never ruling it out. But he did talk about how Mike Tramp's, um, you know, attempts to put together a new version of White Lion, like every time one of those happened, it made him less and less want to reunite it sometime in the future. So he was saying during the Eddie Trunk interview, like, stop doing that because you're making me not want to, uh, you know, ever come back. But he also understood, you know, the fact that obviously, you know, Mike wanted to carry on in some way. Right. And I think what those, uh, Mike Tramp has talked about those ill-fated attempts to bring back some version of white lion. And he describes them now as like moments of weakness where, you know, he was trying to do his solo thing or his other projects and the lure of the name recognition to try to bring that back to, to, you know, juice the moment, um, is the reasons that he did it. But he understands that he understands through his conversations with Vito of like why Vito will always see that as him and Mike. And that was their thing. And really outside of the two of them doing that, no one else should be doing white lion, um, basically. And so I think with each passing year, the likelihood of there ever being a reunion is probably slim. Um, I'd, I think, I'd say it goes down every year for sure. Yeah. 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 But if there were to be a reunion, what I think, um, and if anybody has heard anything different, like, please come in. Like, I, I'm by no means saying I'm an expert on this. I'm trying to piece together from these various sources, like, what, um, expound on, like, what we've seen in Wikipedia and stuff like that. But my guess would be, if they ever did reunite, it would be a few set of acoustic shows or a few or like an acoustic album where they replay some of their old songs, because that's how the two of them used to write 
the songs for White Lion is just right. acoustically. And, and um, it's how Vito can still play. Yeah. The, the, absolutely. The, the injury thing, uh, yeah, that's just, I mean, regardless of what you may think of the guy's music, for somebody who clearly was an incredibly talented musician, uh, you know, technically gifted, or technically accomplished, I should say, because I'm sure he put in the hours, God knows, um, to literally, you know, have an injury that goes, oh, uh, actually, you can't play this anymore. Like, that yeah. must be heartbreaking. Can you imagine? I mean, he talked about playing 15 hours a day. Like, he literally yeah. said that he would get out of shows and stuff like that and just go back and play for a couple of hours and stuff like that. Like, he just was constantly... And I think you can... I think you can hear that, you know, in the in the music, because the, to me... And we'll we'll talk a little bit more about their history in a second. But to me, what sets Vito apart as a guitar player, and there's really only a couple of guitar players that I even put in the same space as him. One is clearly Eddie Van Halen, who he takes a lot of influence from, and the other one is Nuno Betancourt from Extreme, um, <laughs> as far as the style. Yeah. Of, Sorry, I'm laughing because of something I was going to say later. Go on. <laughs> but just like of the type of playing that they did and i think of those styles i feel to me like Vito, and this is blasphemy to van halen fans is better um than eddie van halen um in the way that he incorporates those techniques from eddie i think improvisationally eddie's probably the greatest but i think the way that Vito incorporated tapping into his playing is a more polished version of what Eddie did and expanded on the foundation that Eddie did there. So I think in that aspect of his playing, I do feel like Vito is better. Yeah, you sent um, me some uh, YouTube videos of um, uh, I can't remember a guy. Ben Eller. No, no. Right, yeah. that's it. Ben Eller, yeah. Um, sort of picking apart some of the solos, um, some of Vito's solos from a couple of them from songs on this album, I think. Uh, and yeah, there's a there's a lot of like, holy, you watch it and you're like, whoa! That- <laughs> There's, you know, tapping and bending and lots of whammy bar usage and like, but really, but combining all of them at once and sweet picking and my goodness, you know, all these really, really complex stuff. Uh, yeah, just kind of, as I say, like his technical accomplishments, absolutely no question, got to be one of the best. Well, and in a way that, um, and he talks in one of his, there was an interview that he did years and years and years ago, um, probably during the Pride sort of heyday, where he was just talking about playing. And, and um, he says, you know, Eddie Van Halen is the one that taught me I could use my other hand. He was right, like, you yeah. know, because he would talk about how he would write the solos and he would write them, uh, he would sort of sing them to himself. So he always saw those solos as something that were akin to the lead singer singing. And he said, you know, you get to the solo and the singer's not singing anymore. And so in my head, I would hear this progression of notes, but I would be playing up here on the neck and I would be like, obviously my fingers aren't long enough. How am I going to get down to there? And he said, then, you know, through Eddie Van Halen, I see what he's doing. I realize, oh, that's the answer. I get, you know, I, I, you know, bring my other hand into this, you know, equation and that changed everything for him and what i love about how he plays is how that's um that's something that everybody's like oh when Vito's the tap master and zach wilde said you know Vito's literally the only guitarist who he thinks uh you know 
he enjoys listening to uh, play in that style and stuff like that and, and does that, you know, justice and that kind of stuff. Um, because you don't see a ton of that anymore. Like most people are shredders. And even a lot of the guitar gods of this era were shredders. And any sort of tapping was really like in one part of the neck, you know, and wasn't and was a part of the overall solo. But wasn't well, well, and generally done just to have the whittly, 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 whittly yes, bit, wasn't it? With yeah. the shit that you hate, right? Which yeah. is the noodling stuff. And um and so the way that it was utilized, and I would say uh not by Eddie, Eddie Van Halen utilized it in a different way, and I think Vito picked that up and, and carried that, you know, to another place, was like integrating it into how the overall phrasing of the solo went, how the overall vibe and feel of that solo went. And the and you look at a solo like the one on weight. And if anybody hasn't seen these, Ben Eller has done a breakdown of I think uh weight, tell me, and when the children cry of the actual solos where he plays them super oh, so they're slow. They're all from this album then, yeah. They're all from right. this album. I'll put uh, links he, to him in the show notes. Yeah, and he's also done ones for uh at least uh little fighter off the uh next album he did a breakdown of he and he'll he talks about like what he absolutely loves about um uh veto in, in all of those breakdowns but he plays them very slowly and he really kind of breaks down what's happening with um you know the bends and the taps and the holding one note and sliding it down and all that kind of stuff and he just does such a good job of breaking it down that if you don't hear it in any of this music, if it, if it just doesn't sound like it's different to you than any of, um, you know, the types of solos that you would hear from this music back in the day, I think you'll just gain a better appreciation for it. Um, because that's what I couldn't put a name to it at the time, like when I first heard White Lion, but it was it was that it was that integration and sort of melding of those styles in the solos that he played that just made me like jump out of my seat. And, um, and also white lion was the first concert I ever saw because uh, well, that's the, going to have made a difference. Yeah. yeah. So the first show I ever saw was ACDC and white lion was opening for them. It was the blow up your video tour, um, back in 1988. And that's a whole other story. Like it's impossible to even find the set list from that, but I did find at the end of the show, I'll talk about a, set list they played from a few nights later that i'm sure was the same as the one that they played uh when i was there but um yeah that just it's just the integration of that stuff that to me made it just completely jump out um so vita vito well, is uh and it, and it really does i mean I, I haven't heard the first album but if the mixing on it is anything like this it's not so much jumps out as like you don't have any choice like the <laughs> But then to listen to his guitar, like there is the, the loudest thing in the mix is his guitar on every single track. It's kind of, I actually don't like it. I'm afraid that's one of the things I don't like about this album. Well, it's let's talk about why. Ridiculous to like, all you can hear is the guitar at times. It's like, come on guys, there are three other people in this band. <laughs> so it's funny that, and we're going to talk about the other people in this band because um, my overall thought of this band has really evolved since I, uh, not only since I started listening to them, but even in doing the research uh, for this particular show. But when Vito did that interview in 2007, where he went on um, Eddie Trunk's show, the first person 
that called into that show was producer Michael Wagner. Right. Who, who produced had, this album who, and I think produced all of their albums, is that right? Uh, he produced, I know he produced the, he didn't produce the first one, so he didn't produce right. oh, okay. uh, Fight to Survive, but I think he did produce the other three. And, and he definitely he also, produced these two. He also produced the Freak of Nature albums. Well, and let me tell you about some of the other albums that he produced. Uh, because he produced Motley Crue's Too Fast for Love. He was the mixer on that album. He produced um, a little album you might know called Master of Puppets from a band <laughs> called Metallica. Well, yes. But he I, mixed that album. Um, and actually, he I was just that... making the point that he's clearly got a good working relationship with Mike Trump. Oh, absolutely. But coming into this album, the reason that they brought him on this album is because if you go back and listen to Fight to Survive, their first album, it is very raw. Um, in some ways, maybe even feels a little bit heavier than this album and they and they recorded it in germany and so they went back to germany to start recording for this album pride and didn't like what they got out of those sessions didn't like the sound of it they felt like the sound was too from what i've read was too much in the fight to survive vein and they wanted to they needed to evolve it a little bit and so they brought in michael wagner who had just come off of this is this is 1987 pride comes out In 1986, he did Poison's Look What the Cat Dragged In, he did Metallica's Master of Puppets, he did Alice Cooper's Constrictor, and he did Wasp's Inside the Electric Circus. Oh, and Warlock's True as Steel. Those were the albums he had done the year before, or at least came out the year before, that he came over to do this one. So, uh, I mean, this guy's worked with Overkill, he'd worked with Skid Row... Uh, Motley Crue, he worked with Extreme, he did Porno Graffiti from uh, Extreme, Um, Warrant, like, he just worked with so many bands of that time. Anyways, he comes on this show, and he was talking about, uh, basically, how Vito was one of his favorite guitar players of all time, and there was an amazing story that came out of it that I'll talk about when we get to that particular song on this album, but for, for this guy, who has worked with so many bands and so many guitar players, like... He, when he heard that Eddie Trunk was doing an interview with Vito, he immediately made sure that he was someone who could call into that show and was talking on the show about how much he absolutely loved working with Vito and how much he would love to do something with him in the future and stuff like that. And so it was just really cool to, to kind of hear that. And, um, you know, in those interviews, Vito is very humble of, you know, being kind of um, embarrassed that <laughs> that he's being talked about in that way of sure. like in, in that type of compliment. Um, he frequently used to be uh, mistaken for Eddie Van Halen, and he also was unfavorably compared to Eddie Van Halen in a lot of conversations. You know, as a ripoff of Eddie Van Halen and a um, you know just a kind of a clone of Eddie Van Halen. And to be honest, like I didn't see that as much until I started like doing the research for the show. And I was like, wow, he really did get compared to him all the time. Oh, right. um, there's a thing in the, in a video that they did a documentary that they did where someone comes up to him thinking that he's Eddie Van Halen and wanting to get his autograph oh, no. and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, literally as they're filming the documentary. Uh, and so uh, poor guy, <laughs> which I think, I think part of that was staged and I think they were actually going to have Eddie, um, like make an appearance on it, but then it, it just, for whatever reason, like management didn't work it out or something like that. But he often would get, um, you know, 
compared to as a lesser version of uh, Eddie Van Halen. And I mean, at the time that they came out, I mean, Eddie Van Halen was the the guitar god. <laughs> like, who else, you know, at that, t- especially for the type of music that they're playing, like, of course, if you're tapping and in, in putting that stuff in your music, you're going to get compared to that. But, um, but yeah, so as far as history of the band like it was Vito and Mike met in I think it was 82 or 83 um it was 82 at Club Lamore in New York um the interesting thing about this band is that they are one of the interesting things is they are an east coast uh, origin story as opposed to a west coast origin story where so many of the bands that we talk about in the hair time, genre especially absolutely yeah. you know lamore's incidentally uh, you know famous within the metal community but also known as uh, where typo negative basically cut their teeth <laughs> these guys used to rehearse in the basement there uh, at times and um so they met in 82 uh mike tramp born and raised in copenhagen and until i think he was 18 years old and then he came over to um the states but they met there uh the first song they ever wrote was Broken Heart, which appeared on their first album, but then they redid for, I think it was Main Attraction. They did a version. I actually like the the redone version better of that song. But they, you know, they ended up running into some people who were going to manage them, and they needed to put together demo songs, so they wrote Broken Heart. But they got together in Queens at the time and wrote that first song on acoustic. And for basically the life of this band, it was Mike Tramp and Vito writing the songs. Um, and I think that factors in when you think about how the band broke up um, yeah, later well, on down it, the road. So, isn't that so often the case, you know, with singers, well, it, singers and guitarists? Um, well, that's the thing, yeah. But it's worth pointing out, by the way, also that Mike Trump had already had a career before this. Mike Trump was a pop star in Denmark. Yes. He'd like performed at the Eurovision Song Contest, for heaven's sake. <laughs> you know, What was he, the name of the band? Mabel, I think. Yes, yes, yep, that's it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, which uh, actually, to be fair, if it was Danish, it may have been pronounced Marble or something. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, like he was a pop star, like a successful pop star. And then for some reason decided that he wanted to do rock music instead. Go figure. Yeah. And like, uh, here's another, like the un- the unfair comparisons to, to Van Halen, I think are really unfortunate um, because people who didn't really listen to the band or weren't super familiar with them or, or just weren't around during the time that these guys were around, I think a lot of times that relegates them to a footnote in the conversation um, because of those comparisons. But Mike Tramp also got compared to David Lee Roth a lot, especially because when you look at some of their early videos, he's wearing the spandex and he's jumping off the yeah. you know drum kit and stuff like that. Oh. But... Although I would say David Lee Roth is probably a better singer, and Sammy Hagar is definitely a better singer than well, Mike so Tramp. <laughs> I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up. I disagree on David Lee Roth. I think Mike Tramp is a much better singer than David Lee Roth, um, and I am a fan of the David Lee Roth era of Van Halen primarily, but I actually think he sounds more like Sammy Hagar. And um, the first Sammy Hagar album was what? Was it 84? six oh, it was around I, this time i, I was I never think. much of a van halen fan so uh, yeah I don't, I don't know dates i think the first van hagar album came out it definitely came out while these guys were a band that's for darn like during right. between their first and second albums here but um i'm sure the listeners would know um exact dates on that but um yeah i mean and when i'm saying better like i prefer i prefer Vito 
over Eddie Van Halen, and I prefer Mike Tramp over David Lee Roth in terms of their the singing and the playing. Um, I fully understand that there's going to be a lot of people who think the exact opposite of that. <laughs> so just putting that out there, that is my personal opinion about that. But um, I do, th- I just think that touch Mike the has, third rail, Brian, touch the yeah, third rail. <laughs> I think that Mike has better range than David Lee Roth. And I think his melodies are exponentially better than, uh, and his harmonies are exponentially better than David Lee Roth. <sighs> um, that's just my personal opinion, Anthony. Uh, but this show is the metal arguments, so I will certainly hear. Uh, I mean, I don't care enough about Van Halen to argue that point, but I li- I'm sure many of our listeners do. <laughs> yeah, and I was never a gigantic Van Halen fan, so I, you know, that's not. Uh, I think they were a little before me. Like I was born in '74, and for me, the Van Halen thing, um, other than obviously the 1984 album. Which, if I ever picked a Van Halen album to do on the show, that would be the album for sure that I would do on the show. But like, um, they were just a little bit before me. When was fifty one fifty? That was eighty six, right? Yeah, that's kind of. I mean, that's. I wouldn't say that's necessarily was their peak, but certainly in terms of. Uh, I don't know. In, in terms I mean, maybe of best where, album with a new singer that no one could even believe would have been as awesome as it was. <laughs> I guess right? that. I guess that's probably true. Yeah. All um, time. Uh, I can't think of another. I'm sure there is an example, but I can't think of another band. And Genesis. But the first that was the first album as good as Fifty One Fifty was for like what Trick of the Tail, the first Phil Collins album. Oh man, yes. Anyway, and let's, okay, let's, okay, let's, all right, okay. <laughs> but let's not um, get into that. But Fifty One Fifty is the album that I always think of when I think of Van Halen. Um, right, and yeah, but, that was eighty six. So you would have been only get, twelve years old. Clearly, the comparison that these guys get to Van Halen is the Roth era Van Halen. Right, right. Um, and and specifically, mostly because of Vito's playing, but also because there. I guess you could say that Mike Tramp and and David Lee Roth. I can see it. You know, I can, yeah, sure. I can see the overlap there where where that comparison, but the comparison starts with Vito and Eddie Van Halen for sure. Well, the, I think the difference is that David Lee Roth never tried to become a grunge act <laughs> in the 1990s. Well, hey, <laughs> that does not exist at this point in time. So we 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 will not judge or hold against Mike <laughs> Tramp his later transgressions for what's going on here, because I also feel like, um, you know, if it was up to Mike Tramp. They would have probably still broken up, but gotten back together within a few years, and white, some form of white line would still be right going but on. The reason I bring it up and the reason I laugh is I think it speaks to character, and this is kind of uh, this is something I was going to bring up later, but it's not really about a particular song, so I'll, I'll bring it up now. The so listening to this album, I, I will I'll tell you straight up, my first impression was not good. <laughs> like not good at all uh like just every glam rock cliche that you can imagine everything that made me dislike hair metal in the first place was you know within the first like minute of this album um if i hadn't had to listen to it for the podcast i would have listened to the first 30 seconds and just switched it off uh because it's just got everything that i dislike but what it did it may even more so than the Motley Crue album we did. It got me thinking, like, what is it about hair metal that turns me off? Uh, and there's, yeah, there's the obvious stuff that we've mentioned before, like you know, sort of bad lyrics and posing and fret banking and all that sort of thing. But I, I even those, I can actually forgive them when they're done well. 
like we uh, the Rat album that we did at the start of this volume. You know, as you know, there were many tracks on that that I actually quite liked because, and they all had those things in them. But I thought they were done well in the service of good songs. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think my issue with it, uh, and this album feels like it fits into that category. And maybe this is unfair, but it, this is how it comes across: is it feels it doesn't feel sincere. It feels kind of deliberately watered down in order to make things palatable for the radio and for the charts. Like, it feels like they, the band actually wants to do something heavier and more interesting here, but they're deliberately watering down their own uh, instincts and their own inclinations because they know that this is what will get played on the radio. I mean, you said that they recorded some stuff in Germany and then decided, no, that's too raw. Actually, we want to do something that's more polished and more commercial. That all kind of speaks to the same thing. And yeah. for now, for pop music, again, Mike Trump was already a successful pop artist. For pop music, sure, charting is the whole point. I will never, you know, sort of knock people for being polished and commercial sounding in pop music because that is literally the point of it. But rock music is supposed to have at least some authenticity to it you know some sincerity to it and that to me is what's lacking in a lot of hair metal i think is it feels calculated it feels manufactured yeah well not manufactured Um, because that that implies that there's some svengali kind of telling the band what to do and i I don't i'm not accusing them of that but but, i mean so let's unpack that a little bit right because first of all um i disagree with everything that you said until the part (laughs) about uh until the part about the sincerity thing right Or, or the sort of making it for the radio thing that I think is an extremely fair criticism of this album because clearly, in bringing Michael Wagner in, who is a hit maker uh, and has and knows, you know, what sound you need to achieve in order to make the charts and also, you know, have success with singles and stuff like that. Sure, well, like it's, clearly, it's, it's the Bob they, Rock effect. A hundred, dude, a hundred percent. And so that is a completely fair criticism because they did have a more raw sound. Um, which I could make the argument draws even closer comparisons to Van Halen, right? Um, I think they leaned into more melody, and they certainly leaned into more polish, although I feel like there's elements of this album that still have a raw feel to them. A lot of that is due to the improvisational vibe of Vito's playing, even though it's obviously very intentional, and um, I think his, his, his talent makes it feel easy when it's not, not yeah. <laughs> you know sort of thing but i do feel like yes if you listen to fight to survive and then you listen to this album um this album was clearly made with a with a more polished sound in mind it, to, to, and to I be think played on the radio yeah a hundred percent and so yeah and i guess but i guess my question about that is and this is probably bigger than this episode is like does that make it insincere because, uh, and, I, and I'll just want you to think about that for a second, because when they talk about, um, if you haven't watched the documentary, it's called Escaping Brooklyn. I think that's what the name of it is. It's a documentary they did in like 1992, but they did it shortly, or maybe it was filmed in 91, but it was filmed when they had recently brought in the last couple of guys that were going to be in this band after Greg D'Angelo and James Lomenzo left. It was Jimmy DeGrasso who uh, had played with 
a bunch of bands, but then went on to play with Suicidal Tendencies, Alice Cooper, and then Megadeth after his stint in White Lion, which was not very long at all. Uh, and then Tommy Cardona, uh, Caradonna, sorry, who had played with uh, Alice Cooper on the Trash album and also was part of Lita Ford's band for a while. So those were the guys that came in to replace um, Greg and James uh, in this band. But they filmed this documentary when those two new guys are in. And there's so many things that stand out to me about it. One is that Vito and Mike seem tired. Like you could tell that it was, I could feel like it was getting towards the end there, even though they were talking about like the new guys in the band and how exciting that was and that kind of stuff. But like everything that had happened clearly had sort of worn on them to that point. But they, they talk about in some of the interviews on that, just um, like listening to other people. And that came up in like multiple interviews. The, uh, there was a great interview with Greg D'Angelo um, where he was talking about, and actually I'm going to give a shout out to that one. The Greg D'Angelo interview was uh, by a guy by the name of Jason Green, who has a whole YouTube channel with a bunch of different uh, interviews on there. And in interviewing Greg D'Angelo, it came up in conversation again of like, you know, listening to people telling them what they should be doing and shouldn't be doing. And it's like, there's so many elements of the White Lion story that is the classic story of like, you know, naive guys get together and start a band. Management and record executives and other people are constantly telling them what they should be doing and how they're doing it. And sometimes they're taking that advice and stuff like that. And at the end of the day, the band breaks up most likely because of financial issues and people not feeling like they're getting their fair share and stuff like that. There's so many parts of this that are just the story yeah. that you hear for from these bands at all times. And and they haven't come out and said it because Greg doesn't address it here, which tells me that there's maybe still some stuff um, from a legal standpoint going on, or he just wants to leave it alone. Um, the interview with Greg D'Angelo is great because he really talks about his time in White Lion as this, um, he's proud of what they did. You know, it would, he has great memories from that. He's gone on to do production and stuff afterwards. He's played in other bands afterwards, but like he, um, he doesn't have a lot of bad things to say about that time. And Lomenzo rarely ever even talks about um, his time there. But what it seems is that um, from one interview that I read, I think it was with Lomenzo, they were talking about how when it came time to go out on tour for the third album, um, or, or the fourth album rather, but the third that they had done together, which was Main Attraction, uh, whatever the splits were that him and Greg D'Angelo were getting were like not even enough to cover the expenses that they were going to incur going out on right. tour. Yeah. And so, and the, it, it was hinted that maybe Mike w was going to be more flexible about renegotiating some of that stuff, but maybe Vito wasn't. And so, and so, but that seems to be like why those guys left the band at that point in time. And then when you look back at the history of it, like it's always been Mike and, um, Vito, and that's how the band started, and that's how the band ended. And you know, even though these guys of the classic lineup that were together from 1985 to 1991, you know, they did these albums together, they did all their biggest tours together, and stuff like that. There's still that element of you know, like you said before, the singer and the guitar player, and then the bass player and the drummer, and um, which is really a shame because this is a band that had. I mean, Greg D'Angelo was in Anthrax before he came right. over to... Sure, but like I say, you can barely fucking hear them. That's the problem. <laughs> it's like, I think that's emblematic of... I mean, you're and yeah, you're by no means is that a unique problem for this band. It is a classic problem. The Smiths 
for heaven's sake, a band about as far away from this as you could possibly get, had exactly the same thing, where the drummer and the bassist, after a while, went, hang on a second, guys. Like, we're earning pennies here. Uh, because you're, you know, listed as the songwriters on everything. And, like, we're quite important to this band, you know. It's, it, it, it really is a story as old as, as time itself, or as old as yeah. rock bands anyway. But with regard to the sincerity thing, I mean, again, Motley Crue, let's take that as an example. It, it, you know, you will remember, I was not a great fan of that Motley Crue album. But the one thing that I did say about it at the time, and I will always say about it, is it is clearly exactly the record that those guys wanted to make. And you can well imagine some record exec going, oh, I'm not sure about some of this, guys, and them going, no, fuck you, this is what we're going to do. Right. It comes across as an entirely sincere and authentic album, regardless of whether or not you actually like it. This just doesn't. It just mm. doesn't have that feel to it. The one thing I will say is this album's got a certain amount of energy, which is good, but it's only three years before Cowboys from Hell. I mean, you want to talk about energy, you know? <laughs> um, it just well, and it's right in the wheelhouse of power metal, which is Pantera's best album. So, if we're going to compare it to That's one, true. we should probably compare it to that. Album. <laughs> but it's like it's albums like this that make me think maybe grunge deserves more credit than it gets. Uh, but I mean, well, so <laughs> for performing you don't think a there were a bunch service, of bands you know? that fell under that banner that were following a formula? <laughs> oh no, they like, were totally. You yeah. know, but yes, but they were I the guess, bad ones. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I guess. Uh, so first of all, completely valid criticism of it because clearly in the history of this album, it seems like they did lean into that stuff in in knowing that they would get more airplay and stuff like that. Um, they also leaned into video when they first released uh, Wait, which was the first single off of this album. The first eight months that it was out there, it didn't get any airplay until they did a video until for it. it and then they did a to video be fair, for it. I, I, I will never knock any band for taking advantage of the video revolution because yeah. that was literally a revolution. Like nothing like it had been seen before with MTV and stuff. So I, that's that's a whole apart thing. I'll never knock a band for taking advantage of that. You can. Um, uh, just on that note, while I'm thinking of it, you can go to their anthology album, White Lions anthology album, and hear the demo versions of a lot of the songs off of Pride. And I think at least one song that didn't make it onto Pride. Uh, and you'll see they sound more like um, a fight to survive. They right. sound they sound more oh, raw. Just to bring it back to something I said earlier, the other thing I was going to say was uh, I, <laughs> I wrote in my notes, it's stuff like this that led to bands like Extreme somehow becoming bestsellers. <laughs> you know what? We're going to... You know what you just did? You just you just made an Extreme episode. Um, they now, to be fair, they were on my list to get to at some point in time. But... Um, I want to I want to talk about that <laughs> because for extreme as for many bands of the time it's the stupid ballad that becomes No, I've heard more than just the ballad. Well, I don't know, no, but I mean if in terms of them becoming a hit. Oh, sure, yeah. It's the stupid ballad that becomes their entire legacy. And that is insane when you have Nuno Betancourt as your guitar player and you have Gary Sharon <laughs> as your lead singer, that is absolutely ridiculous. That more than words is your freaking legacy. <laughs> and now you could make the same case of when the children cry with oh, God. white lion. Um, Sorry, I'm giving away my reaction to a song. But <laughs> I'm just going to block that out of my mind when you talk badly about these songs, um, because there's really only one song in this album that I would even 
think about rating other than and it's not when the children cry oh i can't wait to find out what that is no it's not um (laughs) and it's not even because it's a bad song it's just because of uh the vibe compared to the rest of the album let's talk about the fact that on this album they put their ballad as the last song on the album when most bands at this point had either one on both sides or it was on the first side. Well, there was of the definitely album. on side one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To make sure people heard um, it. Yeah. I will also point out that all of the singles from this album are from the back side of this album. When in reality, the front side of this album, in and of itself, is a freaking masterpiece. So the fact that all of their singles <laughs> came on the back side of this album blows my mind because I don't even think that the back side of the album is as good as the first side of the album. I think the whole album is amazing. Let me just make that clear. If you didn't know that already, but. Um, <laughs> But yeah, the whole extreme thing, you, you, you got me in my head about extreme now, because there's a lot to talk about with that one, too. But um, Yeah, well, let, but, let, let's leave that but, for another episode. <laughs> but maybe this is the quote-unquote the extreme question, is like, when a band does that, and all of these bands of the day clearly put a ballad on their album, right? Um, it, it, there became a point where you couldn't have an album without a ballad on it. Uh, is that insincere you know like is that um i think it depends entirely on the band and on the track honestly this this one to me does feel because it's not even a very good song i don't think um i don't mind a ballad i have nothing against a ballad if it's a well-written song but yeah a lot of them weren't and uh i don't think this one is when the children sing the new world begins Anthony, is there? Are you against that message? Is that what you're saying right now? <laughs> you got a problem with the children being the future for crying out loud? Um, okay, let's just see if there's anything else about history-wise. Um, I mentioned before, but obviously, 85 to 91, the the quote-unquote classic lineup uh, is Mike Tramp, obviously on vocals and uh, some rhythm guitar, Vito lead guitar, James Lomenzo, my favorite bass player on bass, and to your point. Um, and I overcome this by cranking up the bass in every device that I listen to. So every music that I listen to sounds like it has a great bass <laughs> component to it because I crank up the bass in everything. But um, if you can hear it, I freaking love James Lomenzo's bass on this album. And I love the tone of his bass. Tone, his tone on bass and Vito's tone on guitar are just so good. And I love how they sort of work together. Um, are they given equal space in the mix? No. But do I love what he's doing there? Absolutely. And, you know, it's like James Lomenzo is a whole other conversation because he's played in so many bands. I mean, after so after they leave, James and Greg leave this band, they go work with Zach Wilde in an early version of what would become Pride and Glory. Uh, James then later, uh, is in Black Label Society for, uh, the Mafia album. Then he is in Megadeth. He has toured with John Fogarty for, uh, uh, really up until he rejoined Megadeth, he was touring with John Fogarty, um, for a while. He has played with so many, he played with Sweet and Lynch when Michael Sweet and, uh, George Lynch did their sort of side project together. He played bass on those albums. So many different things that he's done. Um, and I just love how he, I, I just love the way he plays bass. I love his approach. I love what he brings to each one of those projects. And he has always seemed to me to be a guy that uh, not only does what is required of that project or that particular band, but also finds a way to put himself into that too, in a way that doesn't take away 
from whatever that project or that band is trying to do. And I just, I absolutely love his playing. And so clearly this was the first time that I, you know, kind of ran into his playing was uh, on this band. He's also an excellent singer and has, you know, a lot of uh, background vocals on the White Lion stuff, but has, you know, done that to various degrees with different bands that he's been in as well. And I think, I think that stuff, some of those harmonies are things that really add an element to this band because, um, it just adds something to what Mike Tramp is doing. And if you watch any of their live stuff, there's actually a concert that is at the Ritz, I believe, where you can find the entire thing on YouTube where they're playing a lot of these songs, um, including like slightly different versions of these songs that um, in in one case, I think you would like better, Anthony, than the version that's on this album. But you can really hear uh, James singing. You can really hear how good they sound and how tight they sound live and how these songs really sound heavier live than what you probably get on some parts of the album here. And so, um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I like all three of their albums. This one for me is the is the standout one, although the band would say that the third album that they did together, which was Main Attraction, which was really came out at a time where they were not getting a lot of support at all for what they were doing, um, is musically kind of the direction they had wanted to go in and is a better representation of like the sound that they wanted to get to. But um, yeah, on this tour, they toured with Fraley's Comet, then they toured with Kiss, Aerosmith, ACDC, and they finished this tour with Striper on the Pride <laughs> tour. So, just to give you an idea of like how just the spectrum, right, of um, bands that you're talking about there. You're talking about Kiss, Aerosmith, ACDC, Striper. Uh, just on the Pride tour. That's they've a pretty also wide t- gamut, yeah. <laughs> they've toured with Ozzy. They've toured they've toured with so many different bands. Um and it was the Blow Up Your Video Tour, which was the first concert that I went to uh, for ACDC that I saw them on. Wow. Um, oh, just a couple of last things. So Mike Tramp uh, lists uh, Queen and Thin Lizzy as his major influences. Before every live show, and this comes up in the, in the uh, documentary, he listens to Thin Lizzy's Southbound from the Live and Dangerous album before he goes out to every performance. That's a song that really kind of puts him in the right mindset to, to go out and play. Vito has talked about how Eddie Van Halen is a huge influence on him, but also Randy Rhodes, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jimmy Page. Those were all uh, influences that he talked about, um, you know, being uh, part of what made his sound. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably good for for the early stuff. So, yeah, let's talk about the uh, let's talk about the songs. All right. Well, the album, as we've said, was released 1987. There are 10 songs on it and it's 44 minutes. So smack bang in the average for, yeah. uh, you know, sort of album length and track number and what have you. Like absolutely not, not too short, not too long. Yeah. And I'd say most of them are of the four minute variety. Uh, yeah, with a couple all... of ones. One is kind of artificially long, and and one is um, sort of their epic uh, longer song. I think. Yeah, but they're all somewhere between three and four minutes apart from yeah, apart from track yeah. five, which is over six minutes. Yep. All right. Well, uh, let's get into the album tracks themselves then, and start, of course, with track opener, track one, "Hungry." <laughs>
just an amazing opening song to kick off the album with. This one, I feel like, does have a Van Halen vibe to it. I just because of the guitar tone and and how uh, like open it sounds. It, it sounds like you know he's standing in the middle of the room on that opening riff there. But that first freaking riff is just sick. And then like six seconds in, the little you know fill that he does at the end of the riff is like the first oh shit moment of the, the first album for sign. me. <laughs> the, the first sign for you and the first like. <laughs> oh hell yeah moment for me of like makes me you know sit up a little straighter in my chair and say oh okay all right um i mean it it definitely works in terms of setting you you know this is what you're in for the for for the rest of the album it absolutely sets up the rest of the album no question um it's just yeah the what the question is is whether or not you think that's a good thing when i said earlier that like the first 30 seconds of this if I hadn't had to listen to it is, you know, frankly would have had me switching off because it's, but that's because it's got everything that people who like this sort of music, like it's got, yeah, that flourish of guitar. Like even in the first 30 seconds, he gets some fret wanking in, you know, the, the, the bad sort of cheesy lyrics, the vocals that sound like they were recorded in a bathroom, three doors down. Um, the whoa, cle- whoa, whoa. Let me just stop you right there. <laughs> baby, baby looks so fine. Let me know that you'll be mine. You, you're saying that that's cheesy lyrics? <laughs> yeah, just a little. Uh, and even and the chorus, you know, is like, because they get to the chorus well quickly, like within the first minute, they've started the first chorus. And even that's like pretty cliched. It's, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, in context, it's not a bad track. It's not something that makes me like, you know, put my hands on over my ears and, uh, you know, scream, but it, just absolutely yeah as i say you know if i hadn't had to listen to it i'd i'd hear this and go yeah that's not for me yeah i think what so clearly the lyrics on this are not what stand out for me although i do like the the harmonies and and you know i do like the the vocal melody is not too bad yeah yeah exactly i do like the vocal melody with that and and i do um you know, at the end where they're just, you know, saying hungry, like he's saying it. And then you can hear like Lomenzo saying it in the background, like a, a step behind him. They do some nice stuff with that. Um, but what I like about this song and what I like about the riff and just like how uh, Mike Tramp and Vito kind of play off of each other, you know, like he'll say like, uh, keep your engine running high. And then Vito comes in with, you know, two two big chords right and then just kind of lets those play out and then mike says something and then Vito does like a pick slide and gets into like a chunky you know chugging sort of rhythm i just like how they they play that back and forth with one another and i think this song is a good example of that it's it's not really like a call and response sort of thing but it is like this sort of weaving in and out um, that I do really like. And then when you add in Vito's little flourishes on top of that, it just feels like, and this is where I really appreciate James and, and Greg in that Vito's stuff feels very improvisational in some ways. And I feel like they always give him a solid foundation to bounce off of. Right. And you um, need you that know, if you're going to improvise, that's the thing. Yeah. For the, for this type of guitar player. Right. And so, you know, I feel like they always do such a good job of carrying that rhythm so that there are times where they're not even playing a rhythm track. Like there are times where clearly, you know, there, there is a rhythm track 
uh, for guitar and Vito's then playing, you know, lead on top of that. But there's also times where there is no rhythm track and it's just the bass and the drums that are supporting whatever he's doing at that point in time. And I, I just think they do that. They're very, um, they're lower in the mix, obviously, but they're also underrated in that, I think, because it's not easy to play with that type of player if yeah. you can't like support him well. And, and I think Lomenzo does a great job of that on bass. And I feel like uh, Greg's drums are never... <sighs> and they could probably get criticized as just sort of standard, you know rock and roll, hair metal sort of drum playing, but I do feel like he adds things here and there that are that go above that. Um but I also think that he never like does he's not doing more than the song needs sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean he he's yeah, the, the, there's one song on this album where he kind of it feels like he's trying to do something. <laughs> it's just that you can't hear him. <laughs> yeah, well the, like there's a part in this song right where they slow things down before they go into the solo and um there's a part where it like the tempo of the song slows down and the kick drum and the bass are hitting at the exact same time. We're like, dun, 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 dun. When Vito's playing like these drawn out sort of notes over the top of it. And just the two of them together, like in that moment, I thought was a cool sort of, uh, a cool little thing. And that that's like pre solo. Um, I feel like this solo from uh, Vito is probably his most Eddie Van Halen-ish um, solo here. Uh, but he also does some things where he's doing like this slap technique as they're going through the chorus towards the end of the song and stuff like that. Just a lot of... I feel like this, in terms of being an opener, it gives you a little bit, and in some cases a lot, of everything you're going to see on this album. You get all the different types of flourishes that Vito is going to do. You get some tapping, you get some shredding, you get some chunky Dokken-esque riffs here. You get um, a, a moment of sort of bass and drums kind of doing something a little bit different together. And then you get, you know, the the melodies and exactly what you're going to get from Mike Tramp on this album. So I do feel like it's an up-tempo, you know, heavy at times, it it just has all the elements of a good opening song. Like you wouldn't you wouldn't listen to this song and then hear the next four or five songs and be like, I don't know what that first song was doing because this is nothing like. <laughs> you yeah, <know>, like, <laughs> you're like, okay, we have established the album. Yeah, that's what I say. It 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 absolutely sets up the rest of the album. It's everything as you just said. Everything that's in this song is also on the album. Yep. Uh, let's get a track two then. And that is Lonely Nights.
this one you get the sort of acoustic opening which they do on a few songs on this album and then kicks in hard with the main riff to me this feels very docking um especially yeah, yeah, yeah. because now i think you say there's, that yeah yeah okay I, in fact i would say like in terms of tone the tone that it most uh if someone asked me like think of a similar tone to what Vito does the tone that immediately jumps to mind is George Lynch's tone who i also adore the guitar tone that he has and so the just the tone of Vito's guitars on this album to me are just like perfectly tuned to my soul <laughs> like so when he kicks in with this riff it feels like a super docking riff um and then what i like about this is like when they're playing the main verse you know he's obviously playing like a almost like a muted version of the rhythm for the first part of the verse and then in the second part of the verse the crunch and the and the flare and the heaviness sort of comes in on that and i just like that pattern where it's it sort of like pulls its punch to begin with and then it just really kicks in as that riff gets as the verse kind of gets uh halfway through yeah it's it's um, it's a well constructed song this one um you know the the songwriting this is in terms of pure songwriting i rate this as one of the better ones on the album for sure um although what is it about hair metal bands and catchy songs about sad hookers like there's so <laughs> this, this strange obsession that they have with core girls and stuff it like really really weird does so i I don't know. Let me first say that. <laughs> I don't know what the thing is. Uh, I almost see that as like, if you made a list of like um, hair metal topic tropes, right? We always talk about like sex, drugs, rock and roll, but I feel like this one is also on that list. Absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. Um, Although now that I think about it, catchy songs about sad hookers sounds like a Tom Waits album. But also just like this idea of like, there's always the song about like going out to find your dreams and finding out it's actually a nightmare, you know, go, yeah, yeah. Try, and you, but usually it's about going out to California, right? Going out yeah, to Hollywood, yeah. going to make it out there. And then you find yourself doing stuff that, right, you think whereas you're this is do. Times Square. Yeah. But it's a similar it's sort of exactly thing. Yeah, this is same, definitely yeah. like a huge topic trope for uh, 80s music for sure. Well, like I say, I think that this is one of the better written songs. It is a good catchy chorus. Um, and I also like the ending, the fact that it just comes to a halt midline. That's quite, you know, unexpected for a band like this. Um, but yeah, I, you can see why this one wasn't played on the radio. <laughs> There's times too where I feel like his, uh, the way he like comes into a solo is like almost like jarring. Like here it just starts with this like violent shriek, right? Um, and for the tempo and the sort of mournful almost vibe of the song, um, I think it's a nice contrast of how he gets into the solo. Lots of tapping in the solo. Um, but I, I feel like every solo from this guy, you almost take it for granted, you know, because again, for most 80s bands and for just the hair metal era in general, everybody had a great guitar player. You expect there to be like these ripping, shredding solos. And it's just sort of accepted as like that's part of the formula. But I think when you start to really listen to the to the way that these solos are different, the way he's using tapping in each of these solos, just the, how he's fitting into the sort of overall melody of the song, stuff like that, I just don't think that gets enough credit and it gets dismissed as just that's 
that's what these songs have, you know? Um, but then you see some of those breakdowns that like Ben Eller's doing and you're like, Jesus Christ, like just the level of the complexity, the complexity of it. And not just so many bands, the, the complexity is just speed. Like, oh, this guy plays, right, right. this guy shreds super fast and he can come right down the neck and he hit those super high notes like super fast and stuff like that. And like, yes, Vito can do that. And in some cases he'll do that stuff. But so often it's just so much more than that. Um, and I just, I, and I feel like his solos fit the, the songs that he, that they're, um, that they're in. And so, um, I like this one as kind of, a a darker, um, you know, sort of vibe compared to the first song, which I felt was like real uptempo. Cause you talked about energy before, and I do feel like there's a life to their music and an energy to their music that is very sort of, uh, like this, this forward moving momentum. Uh, sort of groove to it and so i do like that they play with like the mood a little bit and i feel like this one um i really like the song but uh it's a nice sort of flip of the coin from the first one yeah i'd, I'd agree with that all right track three don't give up Give up, Anthony. What like <laughs> keep fighting for the things you want? Are, are you tired of working nine to five? Are you? Do you work <laughs> nine to five? No. This song's about you. It's about you becoming the person you are today. You don't work a nine to five anymore unless you choose to structure those hours that way. I was gonna say, actually, uh, I kind of do. <laughs> if you read the organized writer, then you might see exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh yes, the the ability to uh to create your own schedule in your own lifestyle. Um, yeah. I mean, I like, I feel like again, yes, they talk about, you know, the, the lonely hooker trope there. And there's a, you know, there's another song, sweet little Lovin' coming up, but I feel like if you compare them to the average lyrical content of their contemporaries of that time, I feel like these guys are a much more PG-13 version. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's fair. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, I just, like, it's not, um, and maybe that's the difference between, like, sleaze and, you know, but, and like, glam. I, yeah, yeah, you know, I don't know, but, like, I do feel like, like, sure, maybe they're, they're in the same conversation, but they're not, uh, you don't feel gross. You know, right. like yeah. like going back, yeah. like some of those songs, fair. like that, That's even in bands that we've talked about, are really hard to go back nowadays and like, yeah. uh, and listen to. And these ones here, 
less so. I, I, think. I, I mean, so. you know, there ain't no poetry here. We're, we're not going to spend a lot of this time talking about the lyrics, I don't think, because <laughs> there's not really a lot to pull apart. But they're also, yeah, they're no worse. I than... mean, they're up against the tax man, Anthony. You know, the tax man <laughs> stalking at your door, never giving, always wanting more. Who can't relate to that? <laughs> I that I deal with that every day. Well, indeed, but yeah, no, they're, they're no worse than, uh, as you say, than their contemporaries for sure. Um, yeah, it's this this song is just kind of it's just there, isn't it? Um, the, you like you talk a lot about the solos and stuff. Most of the solos in this album just kind of wash over me. There was one; it wasn't this track. There was one track. I think it might have been. It was wait. We'll talk about that when we get to wait. Yeah, okay. But yeah, most of the solos just kind of... I, I couldn't tell you any of them. You know, I couldn't... If you played me just the solos in isolation, I couldn't tell you which one came from which song. Mm. Whereas I'm sure you could. I'm going to let that land. <laughs> I'm just going to let that land. Um, I really like the bass tone on this one. I feel like the bass is popping on this song and you can actually hear it. Uh, this is a song that like kind of starts off not slow but it kind of picks up the pace with the sort of the galloping uh riff when it kicks in it has a very sort of bouncing feel to me um obviously the top the subject matter is a little bit lighter and uh very cliched in terms of you know everybody just wants to uh to have to fun be free and, man and, and be free man and isn't that what rock and roll is about i mean what are we doing here <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I think there's another song where like, uh, Greg and James are giving Vito a great foundation to sort of build from his solo really kind of jumps off. I think it start it's more, um, it's more shredding than tapping this particular solo. And I think it, it sort of takes that energy that the song has had to that point and just kind of leaps off of it for the solo. Um, a fun song, um, a light song. You know, it's uh, I, I am it's kind of like junk food. I am surprised that this one wasn't a single, given that it's got that horrible chord change at the end. Uh, <laughs> I, I literally heard it in my head when you said it. Uh, <laughs> it is just, it's so terrible and so cliched. And yeah, when I, when I saw wow. that this one wasn't released, because I heard that and I was like, oh, that'll you be You found something to dislike that I never even considered disliking about this song. <laughs> But as soon as you said it, it just popped in my cool. brain. I heard, I actually heard the change. Chord cool changes like that are so hard to pull off, and there are there are some songs with them in that I like, but they are, you know, not the majority. They are really tough to pull off without sounding cheesy. Um, yeah, well, um, but you know, if you don't give up, then you'll find an opportunity to do one of those chord changes <laughs> that does eventually land. So maybe think about that. <laughs> uh, while we're doing that, let's move on to track four, Sweet Little Loving. Oh, 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 
song's awesome, man. I love the opening. I love this is another song. You can hear the bass really kick in on it. I like the rolling bass line. Um, maybe it's just the Lomenzo fan in me that really kind of likes this. But I do also like where, um, you know, when he gets to the right before the chorus, you know, take you to the top and the music all drops out. And then it kicks back in. And when it kicks back in, you can hear kind of the pluck of the bass string when it sort of comes back in. So I do like what they're doing vocally um, and sort of that push-pull with dropping the music out and then kicking back in for the chorus. Um, Good chorus, you know, great melody. Um, I feel like this is a song where Vito's doing a lot of flourishes as he's playing the chorus riff. You know, he's adding something to, to the end of each one of those. Uh, and there's just kind of a swagger to it. Like, I guess what I like about this song is if if Don't Give Up felt, I don't know, like a little thin or or sort of empty, I feel like this one has a, has a more of a groove to it. Um, and maybe it's because of the bass in this song and more of kind of a swagger to it. But I do, I like everything about it. Very melodic. I think the solo's great. Um... I like when they drop out. I, you know, I'm a sucker for the just sing the chorus with the drums in the background, and then the music kicks back in. <laughs> I love all of that yeah. stuff. And I think towards the end, as they're repeating the chorus, he's almost playing the riff and just like sliding it around as opposed. And he does that at different points throughout the album, where instead of like sharply, um, yeah, he, he deliberately plays it a bit sloppily. Yeah, yes, dude, like like intentionally sloppy. I. I like that. I like that as a... Yeah, it's a good effect. It has, you know, I, it, it gives things, a, yeah, that kind of a bit more rock and roll sleazy kind of feel. Yeah, and then I like towards the end where, you know, when he hits the word tonight, they just sort of all lock into that pocket of the groove, and and that's how they kind of bring the song to a close, and I, I like that. So I do, I like the journey this song goes on. It, it's definitely groovier than... Uh... Yeah, or has more of a groove anyway than Don't Give Up. Um, this is the track where I was uh, going to comment on, like, th- this has got quite a decent intro, and, like, uh, there's a, a the drums are a big part of that intro, but you can barely hear them over the flipping guitar. <laughs> it's it, it just, I think that was the first track that made me go, hang on a minute, what's going on here? Because, yeah, D'Angelo's doing some good big stuff on the drums, and it's just drowned out by the guitar. And it was then that I started looking more into who was in this band and realised then that, you know, it was basically the guitarist band. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, makes sense now. Yeah, and you know what? I haven't listened to, like, the collections, because I... I I mean, I have greatest hits albums, but I'm so often, you know, you've got the albums I, anyway. Yeah, I want to listen to the album itself and not just the three songs that were the singles off the album thing. But I, but I think somewhere in the catalog, whether it's, I think they did like a uh, a remaster of all the albums, um, and I haven't gone and really spent time with those to see if that was addressed in those remasterings of like trying to even things out a little bit more and uh and stuff like that so yeah the one that you're listening to is the original yeah you know um maybe they addressed it by making the guitars louder <laughs> i mean that'd be fine by me <laughs> i'm gonna crank up the bass anyways so then i get super loud guitars and crank that bass so uh it works for me somewhere at the bottom of a well there's a drummer and a singer <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> but the thing is like 
which is interesting is that this is Mike Tramp and Vito's band. I like, know. It is their, the two of their band. And I do feel like um, if you listen to Big Game and and specifically like production-wise, if you listen to um, Main Attraction, it, you don't have to dip deep into them, you know, but I think it's worth playing a couple tracks from those just to hear the difference. Yeah. Because well, I do think that gets better. Right, well, let's let's go on to track five, Lady of the Valley. And the reason I wanted to move on to this while we were talking about that was because this is like this is actually quite a good song. I quite like this one. Uh, like musically, it's interesting. The acoustic bits maybe not so much, but certainly you know the rest of it, all the electrified stuff, I think is quite good. I can dig it. Uh, some of the chord progressions are a bit sort of maiden-esque, dare I say? Oh yeah, that's the, the first note that I have on this song. Oh, there you go. Right. Um, Vocally, it's not all that interesting, um, but the lyrics are good. Probably my favourite lyrics on the album. Damning with faint praise, I know, but you know. Um, but you can. There are times in this track where it sounds like Mike Trump's at the bottom of a well somewhere, like and you're straining to hear him. Uh, it's just, as I say, it drives me. The, the production on the engineering on this drives me absolutely crazy. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I just don't know. Considering, as you say, it's his band along with the guitarist, sure. But the the fact that the vocals are so drowned in reverb and so quiet in places is just baffling to me. But, uh, like I say, overall, I this is probably, of the first five tracks, this is my favourite for sure. Oh, this is by far the best song in the album. Oh, okay, okay. And I would say... Uh, for me, this is considering an it's the longest. I was I'm, I was surprised. I would have thought that you'd go for something you know so shorter and punchier. Well, I just feel like they're doing so many good things on this song. But I also, uh, to me, like this is this is an all time great song, whether it's a White Lion song or not. Like I just absolutely adore this song. I think that it shows that they can be this right. They can they can um, have this like harder more aggressive song like that that this is within their repertoire and i i like that but also within the song they're doing a lot of things that you hear on other songs on this album and so it's not foreign to to the music that they're making that this song exists on this album um there's a lot of things i love about this one i love that there was a time and place where the last song on the first side of an album needed to kick ass 
And you could expect yeah. that the last song on the first side, uh, Striper is a great example of that. I know you're a huge Striper fan, so uh, I don't have to tell you, Anthony, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but Striper was one of those bands where like they made sure that the last song on the first side was a freaking ripper, no matter what else was going on in the album. And yeah, I Something that like makes that you go, oh shit, I've got to turn this over and listen to side 100%, two now. Yeah, yeah. And I just miss that. I just miss that in the way that modern albums are put together, because it's just not the same consideration that it was back then. But you, th- that's one of the reasons I love albums, you know, is that you knew, man, and usually before this was the ballad. It was usually yeah, that's the true. ballad, yeah. and then the ripper. And then you flip that thing over. And so, um, anyways, this song in particular, I love the riff. It is very Iron Maiden-esque, uh, again, probably because you can actually hear the bass on the beginning of this album. <laughs> and um, and just the bass in general, I really like the bass line here. There are times where James is doing a lot more than what um, just the the main sort of rhythm line is on this, and especially when the acoustic guitars are playing you can really hear that much better than you can um on the rest of the album so so i like it for that it feels like it's more of a much more of a complimentary and um you know that everybody's participating in this song uh on this one i like that i love the move from the acoustic parts into the much more aggressive like crunchy um you know just almost like sinister riff and then i also like where it goes from that crunch to like you know the pick goes across all the strings and it just sort of opens back up as a song and mike tramps coming back in and stuff i really like his vocals on this production aside like i like i just love his singing on on this song um some great harmonies on this one as well and it's just a nice like back and forth between like this more like acoustic open song to almost like the violent yeah electric guitars on the song and i think that also works in a similar way in the solos well um, one of the things i like about this song is that the solo I, this is probably my favorite solo on the album because it's not fret wanky and it's kind of you know yes. a lot more melodic and just sort of i don't know if th- this is the one solo because i earlier when i was talking about the solos i said most and this is probably the exception this is the one solo i feel on the album that you couldn't pick out and just drop onto to- on top of another track mm. like you know you this solo only fits with this particular track and with this middle eight section which as a whole i think is quite interesting you were saying about the bass and stuff i think yeah it does some interesting stuff in the middle eight as well like i say this is in terms of just pure songwriting and this is probably the the most interesting thing on the album for sure it's just a pity that it fades out at the end <laughs> well we are going to talk about that in a second but i also just to go back to lomenzo's bass playing on this one i think this is a song where you can actually hear like the tone of his bass, and you can also hear because he's he's playing with his fingers on this stuff. He does play with a pick a lot of the time in Megadeth, just because a lot of what's been done before, yeah, you know, requires that sort of thing. But um, I prefer when he when he is finger picking, and um, I just love the way he plays, and I actually feel like it it there's an elegance to it that is very similar to the elegance with which Vito plays. And so that's one of my favorite combinations of this band, even though the production doesn't always do it justice, is that, 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 that from a, just a style standpoint, I feel like their styles work so well together. 
and you can hear it more clearly on this song. But you can also hear it on future albums and stuff like that too. Um, if you if you care to explore any more of that. So let's talk about the fade out ending. <clears throat> because before we get to the fade out ending, I love the part where he's just singing whoa and the riff gets super aggressive. Um it's almost like a chasing riff that he's playing at the time. And like the song gets heavier as it builds toward the end. And then when they do the uh sort of da 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 and you like everything is playing perfectly in sync, I think is so awesome. Um, they also do that live, which is really super cool. In the live version of this song, they end it. And it's ah. not a and well, you, so, you have to, because you can't fade out but live. <laughs> I think you would like there's a slightly different way that they sort of end the song. Oh, maybe I'll look for that then. Maybe I'll see if I can um, find I'll it. I'll send YouTube. you the just remind me, I'll send you the link after. But yeah, it's from that Rich show that I mentioned from right, back in right. 1988. They actually play it, I think, as the last song of the show. But you'll see where they kind of, um, they come into a different way to sort of end the song. And and he's still got a couple uh, vocal parts over the end of it, which I think is really good. And it ends definitively. Um, As opposed to the way that it fades out here, which I knew was going to be your problem with this song, is the fact that it faded out at the end. Because it's such a good song, You, it would be great if it ended if it had a climax, it feels like it deserves and, a climax. And I think we've talked about before, like that doesn't bother me in general, the, the fade outs in the way that it sticks out for you. But I can v- very objectively say like, yeah, it, it would be a cool song to have a clear ending on because the song itself is so strong. Um, so yeah, to have it fade out, I guess is uh, maybe does it a little bit of an injustice, but this is a song to me that very much justifies its six minute and 35 second runtime. Um, I love everything about it. And I think it is, it's, if it's not my favorite white lion song in general, it's definitely my favorite one off of them on this album. If it's not my favorite one from the entire band, it would definitely be two or three. Right. Yeah. Um, for me for sure all right well let's flip over the album metaphorically then as it were i can't wait to do that (laughs) go to track six which is called wait listener in case you didn't get brian's joke there Yeah, this was the big single for them. Um, Which figures, because it's very radio-friendly, this, isn't it? Yeah, because I think on their first album, Broken Heart was the only single. 
And they did do a video for it, but I think the video, I don't even know if the video was really played in the States at that particular time. But um, this was the song where, like, the single had been out. It really wasn't doing anything on the charts. And then the video came out, which is a very straightforward video, which is sort of a black and white them in a studio. Performance uh, video, yeah. You know, performance video. But uh, really, so uh, from one of the interviews, Vito had said that he came up with this song in during uh, the Christmas 1985 time he said mike had gone home to uh copenhagen for christmas uh they got back together afterwards and you know what have you been up to and everything and he played the beginning of the song and the first time he played mike the beginning of that song mike sung the opening you know lyric wait and that was how that song just immediately came together Mm. um Another sort of acoustic opening that we get uh, to this song, I just in terms of like from song five to song six, I like the contrast, you know, uh, Lady of the Valley, very much darker, more aggressive. And here we're sort of back, you know, not not necessarily a lighter tone, but just sort of more, it's sort of a more it's uplifting pretty light. vibe. It's yeah. pretty light. Let's like I said, it is very radio friendly. This track, you know, it's kind of if this hadn't been a single, it, it would be a track that we, I think, probably would both be going. Why wasn't this a single? Because uh, it absolutely sounds, you know, it, including the chorus, is very radio friendly, sing along sort of thing. Oh yeah, great harmonies. Um, this is one of my favorite Mike Tramp songs on the album. Um, I do think it's super catchy. I I just, you know, there's parts of the song again, like like we talked about in a previous song, where when he's singing like "Oh baby, wait," and the bass and drums are and guitar are all like ding 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 ding. I love that. I think that's great. Um, probably the best solo on this album. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So this is the one. This is what I was talking about earlier. I. Because this this was the first video that you sent me from Benella, uh, and and yeah, it looks like a really really complex, like sort of thoughtfully written solo. No question, you know, there's a lot of technique and work that goes into playing it. Clearly, that went into writing it. Some really interesting things that I'd never seen before, like hammer on pull offs, while also bending a string and stuff like that. Like holy shit, you know, really really kind of mind blowing stuff from a guitar playing point of view so i tried (laughs) to pay attention to this guitar solo and my mind just kept wandering man it took me three times to actually listen to this so these are the words that hurt me the most i know and i'm sorry this is where the hurt comes in (laughs) i was just like it just it does other than from as i say I, i can admire it technically absolutely i can appreciate the sort of the skill and the virtuosity that goes into writing and playing this solo but it does nothing for me man I'll tell you what does. I'm going to let that land. I'll I'll give you some redemption. What does is the chord changes at the end of the chorus. The end of the chorus when Tramp's singing, I only want to say I love you. And the guitar goes, I think, down half a step or something. Uh That's nice. I like that. They didn't have to do that. It's one of the things that makes the chorus more interesting than than it would otherwise be. Um, Yeah, you know. So so there, there is something I liked in this track, but mostly it just kind of washed over me. Well, it washed over me in a good way. Um, <laughs> so just about this solo, uh, this is a solo that Vito gets asked about 
in every freaking interview to the point where I saw in one interview, he's like, I wrote other songs. Like <laughs> I did, but part of it is due to the fact that it's their first video off of this album, right? It's the one that, you know, um, sort of kind of put them on the map, uh, with a lot of people. So a lot of people go back to it and it's a radio hit and it's a single off the album. And there's so many reasons that people will kind of come back to this. What I love about it, because there are plenty of solos on this album that are, uh, faster, um, you know, uh, maybe more dynamic in some ways. But if you watch the Ben Eller breakdown of this one, to me, to go back to what I was saying before about the whole Eddie Van Halen thing and how I think that Vito sort of took that and took it a step further, is it's the integration here. Like, and also because I'm not a guitar player and I'm a, you know, as much passion as I have for all of this stuff, like I'm still a layman in, in this stuff. So m- music for me, there's an element of magic to it. I mean, I, in a lot of ways I write because I can't, I'm not a musician and that's like writing is my creative outlet or, or, or even this like podcasting is my creative outlet. And so, but the, something that Vito said that sort of stuck with me and maybe is why I just love his playing so much is that he sings to himself or hums to himself what he wants a solo to be, or that's the first way that he sort of approaches a solo for a song is almost like vocally. And as someone who didn't play guitar, but loved guitar and loved solos and things like that, I sing solos all the time. Like I whistle solos, I hum solos, I, I can close my eyes and play this solo in my head right now, note for note for the exact whole thing. And so what I, and we've talked before about one of the reasons I love Megadeth is because I just love the intricacies of it and, and things like that. And so watching like a breakdown that Ben Eller does of this solo, the first time I watched that video, I immediately then knew why I love this solo so much. It's because of all of those things. It's because of like the tap and then the slide down like eight or nine frets and the bend and the it's all of those things that he's doing together, not in a shredding way, but in a melodic way that make this solo so perfect for this song that is why I love his playing. And so that's, to me, that's why it's the best solo on the album, not because it's the fastest or the most dynamic. It's really because I can see where he sung that in his head. And I love that. You know, I just love that he then made, he made that happen. And he made that happen in this way that a lot of other people can't make that happen. You know, like the melody that he sung in his head that he wanted the solo to be, that he then achieves through this crazy combination of taps and bends and slides and all of those things to me is what makes Vito great. Um, and that's why I like this one. So yeah, like as a song, super catchy, awesome radio song, a perfect song for this album, but that piece of it, like for, for Vito's piece, especially in that solo, it's just like, man, I will that's say, what I love about that guy. I will say, by the way, that you're not alone in uh, singing along with things like solos and you know, musical bits and what have you. I do that all the time as well. Um, you know, there are whole like keyboard sections of Genesis songs and stuff that I will literally sing along to as I'm listening. And there's no vocals there. It's just, you know, <laughs> it's just a keyboard bit. Um, so, yeah, I can totally understand that. Yeah. So I just love this song. I think it's a great um, second side opener. It sort of gets you right back into the the sort of mood and the rhythm of uh, of the higher points of the album, I think. 
Which is probably just as well, because uh, we're about to go into track seven, which is All You Need Is Rock and Roll. This is the song you drop, isn't it? Is the one blemish. It, it's really for me yeah. personally <laughs> on this album. And here's the thing: it's because of the rapper. It's because of the opening and the ending. The song itself, while certainly, you know, is nothing spectacular. If it just started with the riff that opens the actual song proper, and it just ended before going into that sort of bluesy. Um, you know, fading out uh, jammy solo that they do at the end, I would be okay with this song. But it's those things that actually drag it down for me. And it drags it down for me because, to me, the vibe of that whole approach to this song just does not fit with the rest of the album. Right. The rest yeah. of the album is definitive, you know, in what it's trying to do with each song. This is like, this is like opening in a bar and they're all sort of playing and jamming around, and you hear the kind of crowd or, you know, whatever, and then we start the song. And then at the end of the song, it's again, like we're back in the bar, and we're just jamming out a solo, you know, elongating a song while we're playing it in front of the crowd and stuff like that. And I'm not saying that that doesn't work in a lot of scenarios, but to me, this would almost be something like that would maybe be a bonus track on the album. Where because it has such a different feel than the rest of what they're doing on this album, and that's that to me is like you're moving along. All these songs are you know like them, don't like them, whatever. There's a flow to them, and the flow is really thrown off by this song. I, I think it's I, I think you're onto something there because it's kind of it feels like a sort of an attempt to make them come across as a as a jam bar band or something and they are clearly not that you know um i don't know maybe it's the east coast thing as you said rather than the west coast i'm not sure but also just the song itself i just don't think is very interesting i think it's probably the poorest song on the album um the lyrics you know not interesting uh the vocal melodies also not particularly interesting um it's not yeah, you know, the songwriting doesn't stand out. Um, the one thing I did notice that made me laugh was this is clearly meant to be uh, the sort of the big sing-along, the shout-along, uh, you know, for a live show. You know, it's clearly written so that uh, when they play this live, uh, you know, everybody sticks their hands in the air and sings along with, um, you know, all you need is rock and roll. Okay, great. Except 
<laughs> it's I'm not sure how many people could because the whoa bit it goes low enough that you're going to naturally sing that in like a middle register, which is what Tramp does. But then immediately afterwards, the next line is really high. Like, unless you switch registers, unless you go down a register to sing that, you've suddenly got to hit some really fucking high notes like Tramp does. But how many fans are going to be able to do that? Right. You know? <laughs> how well, many people in the crowd, I wonder, tried to sing along and, like, nothing came out? <laughs> and you mentioned, like, you know, this is the big sing-along song, but every song in this album is that. And so that's the problem, is that when you have a whole album of sing-along songs, and I would even say, when you look at All You Need Is Rock and Roll, and we go back to song number three, Don't Give Up, like, I feel like we already have that, um, and I would even say a better version of this song that we are talking about right now is coming up. <laughs> like, okay, okay. When we get to oh, yeah, uh, yeah, song yeah. number nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's almost like, if you were trying to do like the uplifting, you know, fight for the things that you love, let's all be free, let's all sing along thing, I feel like you have two other better examples of that on this album. This is the, third, this best album. the, the album, third best yeah. version of that song on the album. It's the third best version of that on this album. And really, almost all of their songs are very catchy from a chorus standpoint, and you could have the crowd singing along and stuff like that, and they do when you look yeah, at I mean, their they, live performances. Yeah, they can clearly write a chorus, yeah, no question. A hundred percent. And so... If this was a band where they needed one song like that, then I could see that. But I almost, like, you said it perfectly. It's the third best version of that thing on this album. And to me, when you take that and you add just the vibe that it has in its beginning and ending, it's almost like a record scratch moment in an otherwise very, like, good flow. Yeah, it's just, it's weird. I don't know. Let's move on. Track eight, Tell Me. another big hit for them um, oh was this a single as well yeah all oh, right uh great chorus um i like starting out with like the the vocals on this one um this is another one that has that hopeful tone like us against the world two teenagers in love you know people don't understand we're we're gonna go and uh find our lives together and all that kind of stuff so i to me it's like they're living on a prayer um, their their version of Bon Jovi's "Living on a Prayer" like sort of thing, um, and I think it works. I think overall, super singable, right from the outset, very catchy. I like again where we bring in 
the bass and we bring in the guitars. I think it has a great uh, bass tone to it, a warm sort of tone uh, to the bass on this one. And I also like at the end of the verse where you sort of have that, I don't know, like it's almost like a descending sort of feel or, or like kind of pumping the brakes on on the riff sort of thing where you incorporate a little bit of acoustic to it and stuff like that. I like what they do with the rhythm uh, riff. Yeah. And and how they sort of execute that, and I think during that you have Lomenzo who's like hitting a series of like descending notes, like one note at a time, yeah. and each one of those notes kind of rings out, and I really like that. You're talking about the pre-chorus, I think. Aren't you? Yes, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, the we exactly were teenagers, but yeah, 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 yeah. It's a good pre-chorus. Um, yeah, I mean, this whole song is really just a chorus in search of a song, really. Um, like it's all everything in the song is designed to get to the chorus to build to the chorus, to have the chorus, and then once you finish the chorus, to get back to it as quickly as possible um, and, and as painlessly as possible. Not necessarily a bad thing, but like w- when it's not the chorus, there's not a lot going on here. Um, one thing that really bugs me about this song, and it's, it's not a criticism of the song, but you'll understand why in a second, the verses, there's something about the melody, the vocal melody in the verses that reminds me of another song and I cannot place it for the life of me. It is absolutely killing me. At first, I thought it might have been Your Love by The Outfield, if you remember that. Mm. But, but I don't think it is that. I don't think it's that. Maybe it's something by heart. I don't know. I've racked my brains, and I cannot. There's something, literally just the first two lines of the verse. Oh, man, now you're putting that in my brain. Yeah, just like it's... And I don't know for sure if the song I'm thinking of came before or after this one. I'm not, you know, accusing them of rip-off or anything, but it is so similar, just something about that vocal line, and it bugs me. Every time I hear this song, I'm going like, fucking hell, what is it? <laughs> I wonder if anybody listening I, will have that suggestion that they'll put in the comments I would and love unlock that part of your brain. If listeners can answer this for me, I would be very, very grateful, because it would get it out of my head at last as well. Um... But yeah, it's it's a fine song. It's a bit by the numbers, as I say. It's just it's clearly all built around the chorus, and it's a perfectly fine chorus. That's it, really. The, and also, man, great, great, uh, you know, love song. The, for yeah, I guess if you if you like the music, right? It's I mean, you're a teenager yeah, listening yeah, to yeah, this. Like, fair. it's a great song about you and and your and your partner. You know, like it, to me, that's again, it's like the living on a prayer for Bon Jovi thing. Like it's it's there, which I, I'm, I like this better than living on a prayer. But that's you know, again, I'm <laughs> well, upsetting people who. <laughs> you know, although, well, unlike living on a prayer, though, the guitar in this compared to many of the other songs on the album actually feels a bit subdued. Like it doesn't feel as full on in this track. Unlike, say, you know, living on a prayer. Obviously, the guitar's you know, 100 miles an hour all over. I would argue that the guitar is less of a lead guitar in this song and more of just serving the song. That's kind of what I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's quite a contrast to the lead of almost every other song. Exactly, every other song. (laughs) It's like, here's a guitar. Um, Yeah, But also, like, on this song, you can hear the bass more and you can, uh, you know, and there's there's a fuller overall sound. Um, I guess I feel like there's a there's a bigger bottom end on this whole song, um, especially in the verses and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, but yeah, like and of their uh, singles on this one, I forget if it said I'm just looking to see 
Let's see. Tell me. So wait hit number eight on the Billboard Hot 100. Tell me hit number 58. Uh, and then when the children cry hit number three on the oh, man. Uh, Billboard Hot 100. So, but all three of these charted in the Hot 100 uh, for that. And it was wait, tell me, and when the children cry are the three. Right. Um, and you can, I mean, great radio song, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, it's all about the chorus. And when you're making a song for the radio, you know, it is just like the chorus is everything. So, and just again, like the the sing along nature of this, like in concert and stuff like that. I mean, growing up, my kids, I used to obviously have a ton. You of made CDs your in kids listen to this. Oh my god, they could sing it. <laughs> they could sing the whole album, uh, which used to just infuriate my wife. Because you imagine the two child kids, services. Imagine my kids sitting in their car seats in the back seat of the car, and my wife in the front, who's not even a big music fan, but also like of this era, maybe like some Bon Jovi and stuff. Definitely not into ninety percent of the stuff that I, you know, listened to back in the day. And I would throw this CD in, and the kids would like <laughs> on this song. Tell me, the kids would be singing along. I mean, you know five years old singing along to the chorus of this um i suppose like, that's one thing about this album being as you said like pg-13 you wouldn't want to do that with motley Crue. yeah but, but it's like this the choruses are so catchy and singable on this thing that it's like the kids would just sing along like wait they'd also sing uh, along with uh with that but like tell me and stuff like that. and my wife could not be rolling her eyes your, harder your long-suffering wife <laughs> she'd just be like oh my god why do they know this why do they know this song and it was just like and there were so many bands that i would do that to winger is another one that i that there were songs on that but tons of uh hair metal stuff that my wife would just be like i can't believe that they even know who this like they knew who the band was they knew what the song was like and my wife would just be like why why is this why are you the way you are basically uh, <laughs> you know to me but yeah so this was just one i have good memories uh in addition to that first concert experience i have great memories of like this was an album that resonated with the kids when they were little uh they just liked the melody of it sure i mean that's got to be a great memory hasn't it yeah yeah <laughs> all right let's move on to track nine all joy in our hands love this song there's something about this like to me this is the song they were trying to do with all you need is rock and roll but i i just think this is such a better execution of that thing i love that like i'm a sucker for 
let's all join our hands, clap. You know, yeah. uh, I think that work. I just think this it all works in this song, and I also feel like this is a song where the the music is heavier than the song than you would expect it to be for this song for the lyrics. Yeah. yeah. Yes, because like when they, you know, especially when the music drops out, and it's let's all join our hands, and then they clap, and then the freaking guitar, drums, bass just come in after that. It comes in so hard that it's like unnecessarily heavy, and I freaking love it. I just love that um, the song like goes so hard on a song that is really about like you know being better to one another and uh, right. It's and, a sort of gentle know, hippie lyric, and it is, yeah, dude. And, yeah. and then it's like got this crushing like uh, come in, and I and as you get towards the end of the song, when everything comes back in, like they're like they're building up, like everything is ascending as they're all kind of playing together. And so I just love how this song comes together, it, even though it is the hippie, you know, cheesy. Let's all join our hands. But I like it's a feel good song that makes me feel good. I, I would. I don't know whether I'd say I love it, but this this is probably my favorite track after Lady of the Valley. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly musically, it's. I think one of the things I like musically about it is that it's kind of laid back and a bit scuzzy in places. A lot of the guitar stuff on this album, because of who's playing it, feels very clean and precise. Yeah, and this doesn't. And and it's of course deliberately so it's obvious that it's you know played that way deliberately, but I kind of wish he'd done that a bit more, frankly, because I really like that, um, and I think it suits this particular song lyrically. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's hippie naivety and what have you. Nothing wrong with that in the right context, you know. I don't mind that at all. Um, but this is another. This is also another song where Tramp sounds like he's singing from the bottom of a well. Like you can, there are lines here where you can ho- almost hardly hear him. And when the, on this song in particular, the lyrics are actually, you know, something that you pr- presumably want people to hear. It's just baffling. Absolutely baffling. But yeah, I agree. This is, like I say, this is probably this along with uh, Lady of the Valley. You know, th- they're my two yeah. favorite songs on this album without question. Um, and musically, as I say, it is doing, maybe that's because it's they're both musically doing something a little bit different and a little bit uh heavier a little bit sort of uh, yeah like deliberately sloppier or whatever you know the chords are a bit more interesting i'm not like hard to put my finger on it but yeah they're the two that stand out for me for sure well and just like the way this song starts with that violent like just incredible opening um where you just like you you're not expecting it to then open up into this song. True. Like yeah, the way it true. starts is, is with a very aggressive like screeching um sort of thing and then it opens up. And it settles into a groove during the regular sort of verse there, but from that opening lick like you don't think that that's where this song is going. Um and also the way that it wraps up at the end like so it's that that again that riff is like so much more aggressive than you would think a song like this would require yeah yeah Yeah. and and it kind of has almost like this jarring effect but as the song goes on it has it has this uh, empowering effect to it that really i think by the time the song is over you're like damn okay 
that song really freaking went for it. It, it did. And yeah. I like that. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. All right, we can't avoid it any longer. Let's go to track 10. <laughs> Are you referring to the perfect closer that is When the Children Cry? Oh, my God. Are you referring to the song that again hit number three on the Billboard Hot 100? Look, like wh- not the not 100, Anthony, the Hot 100. Look, one song about like, hey, we should improve society somewhat is fine, but two in a row, too much. That is well, let me much. ask you this question: Have we improved society? Oh, Jesus, and no, we haven't. And so, because we haven't, it seems like we need more songs about improving society until we actually improve it. I listen to this song, and it just makes me think that Michael Kiska heard this and thought, <laughs> "No, I, I can get cheesier than that," and that's why he wrote "Windmill" for the Chameleon album. It is, oh my god, could it be any cheesier? Any? Oh, it's just, it's so bad. I'm sorry, but it is. And, and the first time I heard it, I was like, well, at least this is one song where we're not going to get a really ridiculous solo. But oh boy, I was wrong. <laughs> like, even I this. I don't think that ridiculous, I don't think you're using that word correctly. <laughs> oh, man. Because again, you're talking about the number two song on Canada's top singles. You're talking about the number seven song on the Swedish singles chart. And the number 88 song on the UK singles chart. Brian, the birdie song reached number one in the charts over here. Like, I'm the chart positions are well. Not- to be fair, they were the outlier. I mean, all the other ones are top ten. So clearly, the rest of the world recognized the greatness of this song. Oh man, um, yeah. I mean, hard to uh, overstate the impact that this had on their popularity. Um, not with you, certainly, but with many other people around the world. Um, this was a huge, huge song for them. Um, and here's my thing about this song. Like, it's the only ballad on the album. And it's the last song on the album. Yeah, which is, we said, he's like unusual. It. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, and I do like the song, and I do very much like the solo on this song. Um, I also like how in the second verse of the song, the electric guitar starts to come in, in the background. Um, I I like what it adds to sort of the second verse of the song. Again, very singable. Um, Obviously, a message that some might see as cheesy and others might see as a job not yet finished, Anthony, in terms of making the world a better place. 
Um, so I like it. I and I like where it's at because I think they could have put this anywhere else on the album, like every other band did. You know, at the fourth song, you know, right before the end of the first side, and they put it at the end. Um, and even though it is completely in contrast to how the album opens, I actually like the fact that because we end on this note, it then brings me back to the heavier elements of the band that I want to hear again. And it does have that effect of making me want to start the album over because I know that first song is so, such a killer. Um, so I, I like it. I like where it's placed. Um, I guess I could see maybe flipping it with all join our hands and having when the children cry, be the ballad before the closer that is all join our hands. I think that could also yeah. potentially work. Yeah, I could say that. Um, if you wanted to end on a more, you know, uh, a heavier note yeah. and a more, uh, especially with the the sort of aggressiveness of that main and, riff that they also close with on "All Join Our Hands," yeah, like end it, with something rocking out, yeah, yeah, it ends with something like "Damn," and then you just turn it right back over and you get that hungry riff right off the front. Could also work really well. So I could see maybe flipping that, but other than that, like I, I think it sits at a good place on the album, and it was a humongous hit for them. Man. So that's the album. That is Pride by White Lion. Uh, I don't think it's any surprise that I won't be uh, seeking out the rest of their discography, but uh, this has certainly been an experience. I'm going to interpret that all as very positive. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I will also add that in the 1988, I could not even find the set list for this. And it's so interesting because, uh, you know, I've grown so accustomed to looking up like on, I think it's set list FM or whatever, where it shows like concert set lists and things like that. And usually you can find stuff. Um, Springfield, Massachusetts at the time, there's some places that, that listed as Springfield, Illinois, like that, because they just like, this isn't even a place anymore where a lot of concerts come through, but back in the day, the sort of, um, for anybody that's an East coaster, the sort of route, um, was that you would, you know, there would, there would be New York dates. There would be a Hartford, Connecticut date. There would be a Springfield, Massachusetts date, and then there would be a Portland, Maine date at the Cumberland County Civic Center. And that was sort of the route that all of these major tours would take. The idea of like ACDC coming to Springfield, Massachusetts today is insane. It would never. The only place they're going to come here in Massachusetts now is Gillette Stadium, where the Patriots play. Right. Um, but because also, that, that's, you know, it's difficult for people putting these things in, uh, figuring these things out in retrospect. You know, this is all pre-digital. Really, eighty-eight. Most people still weren't even using computers for anything, let alone, uh, you know, the internet. For sure, the internet was in its infancy. The web hadn't been invented yet. So, yeah, you've got to forgive people a little when they're trying to put these things together forty years well, after the fact. And on a tour like this, the people are much more concerned with making sure to get the set list for ACDC into the right, yeah, you know, yeah. database than the set list for White Lion. So I actually had to look at a bunch of dates around that time to see what the set list was that they were playing that I can only assume because my memory fails me that this was the set list that they played. And they're all songs from this album. They open literally with the whole set. Yep, the whole wow. set. Wow. Um, and they end with All You Need Is Rock and Roll. Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> which I guess on an ACDC tour, not yeah, yeah. necessarily a bad like, hey, and give it up for who's coming up next, the yeah. biggest, greatest rock band of all time. Um, 
So yeah, but they play Lady of the Valley, they play Wait, they play When the Children Cry, Tell Me, All Join Our Hands, Don't Give Up, and Hungry were the songs. Uh, so eight songs in the set uh, wow. for that. And again, that was all the way back in 1988. But the cool thing is, if you do want to just see what they sounded like live, that show from the Ritz, which was only a few months before this, it was in May of 1988, and I saw them in September of 1988. Right. Uh, they play an entire set at the Ritz, and almost every song is on there. And so well, you'll I'll, get I'll to put see. that in the show notes, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool, and and the quality of the recording is actually really good. Um, but you'll see, like, just from Mike Tramp's outfit and stuff, where the David Lee Roth, you know, comparisons came in and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, they they sound great live, and you'll you'll also get a better appreciation for like Lomenzo's backup vocals, right? And yeah. um, and that stuff too. So, uh, yeah, man. I appreciate you taking this journey with me, Anthony, because I really do love this album. Like this, for me, as crazy as it may sound to you, would be a Desert Island album for me. Wow. I absolutely love this album. Um, I think their other albums are a bit more of a mixed bag for me. Um, Although you could definitely make the argument that there are songs on their other albums that are better than anything other than Lady of the Valley on this album. Um, but they have a but as an song. album as a whole it's just a mix yeah like yeah. they have a song called lights and thunder radar love the cover that they did of i think it was the golden earring song was a humongous hit for them on their next album um and then on main attraction they did a song lights and thunder which i think is fantastic um they redid uh broken heart for i think it's on main attraction as well and the version that they did for that album to me is head and shoulders above the original um, which is rare that the the sort of revisiting of a song ends up better, but I think in this case it did, and that's one of their best songs. Little Fighter is a song off of the Big Game album that was a big hit for them, and uh, is about Greenpeace, um, about the ship that got just the Greenpeace oh, the ship Rainbow that Warrior. got destroyed. That's exactly what it is. It's about that. Um, and yeah, so so great songs throughout. Like, so this is a band who, if you want to listen to the greatest hits album, I think that's a good way to go if you're not interested in really exploring their full discography because they definitely have more than enough to fill uh, Although, a greatest hits album. If the discography is only three albums anyway, well, I mean, when you bring in the fourth, the the original one, it's three albums with this lineup. Right, right. Um, but then you bring in Fight to Survive, which has some really good songs on it, and so all together, you know. They've got, and they did a whole collection, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have my thing up right now, but they basically did a whole collection of all of the albums in like a oh, slip, vinyl re- slipcase type of thing. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And so, um, you know, all of that stuff is all on, you know, you can find it, I'm sure you can purchase it on Amazon and and. and definitely is on the streaming services and stuff like that. So, but yeah, white line, a band that really their heyday was, you know, six years. Um, and often get footnoted in the conversation of the day, but I feel like we're in many ways, one of the better bands of that era. And Vito Brada is a guy who, you know, one, one of the, because you have such a small sample size of his work, yeah. I think is one of the reasons that there's so many people for, that grew up listening to that music that are just like, man, I miss that guy's playing. I really, 
I really loved listening to him play. So, um, but in some ways, I actually think it's kind of cool that there's that limited sample size because, like you said, like it, it, in some cases, there's no it's diminishing returns. It, it, it's like uh, the, the classic example that always gets pulled out is um, Faulty Towers. There are only 12 episodes of Faulty Towers. And because of that, Faulty Towers never had a chance to get bad, it never had a chance to go downhill. And so right, what, it never jumped the shark. Right, and, and so you, yeah. what you have are twelve amazing episodes. Every single one of them is brilliant, uh, and so it's remembered as like you know one of the greatest comedies of all time. And that's because yeah, it never went downhill. It didn't get the chance to go into decline. Yeah, and if you if you you know watch any of the even if you watch just like the first fifteen minutes of that uh, Escape from Brooklyn documentary like it is sad in the sense that like here's a band that i think a lot of us who grew up listening to them would have loved to at least get a couple more albums out um you know it definitely felt like it ended too early um and certainly for Vito, like ended way before people had you know heard enough of his playing and um just how tired they seem in there's a sadness to that documentary that really Mm. hit me when i watched it but also there is a genuine friendship that really made me sort of rethink. Cause you know, a lot of the time I'm thinking of, you know, how uh, James and Greg left the band, egos clashing, stuff like that. And then you watch some of this stuff, especially with Mike and Vito and they've obviously been through a lot together. They, they created these songs together. And by the end of it, it was really the two of them you know, just trying to keep it sort of going. And from what I've read, it was like, they literally decided a few months, a few days before their last show, like, you know what, when we play, I think it was Boston was their last show that they played in, um, in, I think it was 1991. Let me see. Um, but they just had a conversation like a few days before that particular date. And we're like, yeah, this, uh, show is going to be our last show. And they were just, they I think it was, uh, I think Mike said that to Vito and Vito's like, okay. And that was kind of the end of it. And they just sort of were done. And that was it. And, you know, a lot of people were just waiting for years and years and years for them to get back together. And it just, uh, like I said, if it ever does, I do feel like it would be Mike and Vito going out, doing some acoustic sets, probably the way that they started putting all those songs together in the first place and playing songs that Mike could still sing and that Vito could still play. And having said that, if that ever happens, the second they go on sale, I'm getting tickets. Of course. Like I yeah. would absolutely <laughs> 1000% um, go to that. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I guess researching this and kind of looking through it gave me a better appreciation for Mike Tramp because in the ensuing years with like the failed attempts to put a new version of White Line together, like y- you tend to look negatively on that, right? And negatively on him for trying to sort of do that. And so it was good to go back and like see some of those earlier documentaries and, and around the time that the band was breaking up and stuff to sort of remind you that, you know, it's just in some ways it's a guy trying to keep something going you know, and, yeah. and re- rekindle something like that. And it's just, it's just sad that the, their story is in, in that way, very similar to so many other bands, you know, kind of going out that way. And the veto thing was just like, you know, I think people expected there to be some huge story behind it. And there really wasn't. Yeah. It was just like, he walked away, uh, 
he he was taking care of his family and then he during that time he also got an injury and you know he may eventually make his way back i know he made an appearance at there was there was some lamore reunion shows that happened um and he like made an appearance but i don't think he played i think he just appeared and got up on stage with some of the other people that were playing and stuff like that maybe sang backup vocals or whatever i haven't watched the performances of it but um i know that anytime he sort of comes up for an interview everybody's paying attention so all right well i think that'll do it for white lion uh are you sure you nothing else <laughs> i'm sure you, you want- <laughs> i'm sure you could probably go for another day <laughs> yeah you, you i guess tons of stuff from interviews i still uh, uh but uh before we get to the homework for next episode uh i'll just thank everyone for listening remember if you enjoy the show you can spread the word tell your friends rate us on itunes google play podcasts spotify we're on all of those places um and of course you can support us directly patreon.com slash thrash it out uh if you want to get in touch go to thrash it out podcast.com for links to email and twitter for as long as twitter's still a thing uh, i'm on mastodon instantly now as well well i've been on mastodon for years but i'm using it now are you on mastodon i did not do mastodon i did hive oh right i'm on hive as well um, yeah. although i haven't really been on it are you uh, you are so good at posting consistently with whatever social channels that you're that you're on that i envy that you're really good about that you're a very organized writer anthony and it um, has been said um anyway how how could i if i wanted to become more organized how could i do that (laughs) well there is a book um uh yeah anyway but twitter still exists for the moment so yeah as i say that's got links to our email and twitter and the facebook group of course you can join that at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out uh where we talk about these episodes but also you know post links to videos and talk about metal and argue about subgenres and things like that yes and tell people that they're crazy to think that um they like someone better than Eddie Van Halen and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. <That'll... laughs> so homework for next episode. Right. So I've been thinking about doing this one for a while and I think now is the right time because if there's one thing I was looking back through the tracks we've had on this episode, Rat, Nightwish, Winger, Perfect Circle, Trivium, Alice oh. in Chains, Ramstein, Faith No More, and now White Line. If there's one thing that, unites all of those bands and really there isn't much but if there is one thing that unites all of those bands it is musical excellence like they are all they consist of people who are really really good at playing music like people who really control their instruments and can get the best out of them that could never be said of this band (laughs) (laughs) we are going to listen to the debut album by venom Holy shite. From 1981, called Welcome to Hell. And yes, nobody could ever accuse them of being musical virtuosos. (laughs) What a great pick for this volume of the of the podcast. That was a that's a really nice job you did of pulling that all together and then um, spitting in the face of it. I really like what you did there, which is exactly the sort of thing that Venom would do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
So, yeah. You really gave that one the the yo Henry. Venom's Welcome to Hell from 1981. I have no doubt that some of our listeners, I'm thinking of a few names in particular, will already be very familiar with this album, but I am also equally confident that most listeners probably are not. So uh, pin your ears back, settle in, and prepare to be amazed <laughs> by, by what you're going to hear. Yeah, I would say... <laughs> Just right off the bat, like, that would be an album that I heard that other people had, but I never owned myself and have not spent a lot of time with. Fantastic. I mean, you you could barely get anything further away from what we've just listened to. Uh, So, yeah, it's going to be a real interesting contrast. Amazing. Great pick. (laughs) All right. uh, So we will see you for that episode. In the meantime, keep thrashing. Take care, everybody. Oh!